You're listening to the Oz Movies Podcast, only on the Oz Network. Welcome back to the Oz Network for week number three of Mission Impossible, June and July. Um, we have entered into July and closing out the original, I guess you consider it the Tom Cruise heavy Mission Impossible trilogy. Uh, so we're about ready to kick off the Team Effort trilogy, which is going to follow after this. But we need one last movie of just Tom Cruise dominating everything on screen. Uh, the year was 2006, and everybody had started hating Tom Cruise about a year earlier. So this movie comes out, Mission Impossible 3, with nothing but criticism, even though there's nothing wrong with the movie. And it's going to be exciting to talk about it here 12 years later, when people have forgotten why they hated him in the first place. Uh, let's get it going here. My name is Colin, and let the lens flares begin. And my name is Ben, and when I was little, I had a cat. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's the one-liner of this movie. <laughs> Can't wait to talk about that scene. Yep. <laughs> um, Mission Impossible 3. So... As I mentioned, I, I, I guess now we kind of consider it like not that Mission Impossible is a whole series, but it's more like two trilogies. You know, this first trilogy was like the Tom Cruise, and Tom Cruise is definitely still the star of like four, five, and six later on. But this was kind of the end of every single Mission movie has its own feel to it. Uh, you know, it, obviously changing directors is a big thing. You know, they do change directors in four and five as well. But here they're bringing in different team members every single time. Most of them are completely disposable and throwaways. Uh, movies really have nothing in common other than the Ethan Hunt character. And even the Ethan Hunt character is not very consistent from movie to movie. But this is where we went from one, where we're kind of at about a seven or an eight, people's appreciation, to two, where people are kind of at a two in their appreciation. <laughs> that's, um, that's and now we're well up, I think. Yeah, I think we're well up to an eight or a nine with Mission Impossible 3. Um, we'll go through our history with this movie in a second. What, ben, why don't you start us off and tell me your history with Mission Impossible 3? Well, I can actually pinpoint the very first time I saw this movie. So memorable it was. Um, <laughs> it was, uh, it was a uh, Wednesday in the middle, well, the beginning of July in the year that was 2018 when I finally sat down and watched this movie. Um, yeah, I, I said at the end of last week, I think kind of Mission Impossible 2 scared me off seeing any of the other Mission Impossibles. Uh, you know, I vaguely remember this coming out thinking, oh yeah, cool. I don't want to see that. Um, and I just didn't see any of the others because again, I just wasn't the biggest fan, um, of the first two movies. So, um, yeah, this is the first time I've seen it. Um, I enjoyed it much more than the first two, <laughs> um, but it's, it's still an interesting movie. Um, I mean, I love Philip Seymour Hoffman, so there's that. Um, I don't like Maggie Q, so there's that. Um, <laughs> yeah, there's, and there's more to talk about than that. <laughs> it's, it's interesting because I kind of have two different reactions in watching this. For one, Every single time I do watch Mission Impossible 3, it's almost like I always forget how much I enjoy in this movie. Because uh, once we get to part four and five, they're definitely bigger and more memorable and closer, I think, to what we'd be considering more like a James Bond-type movie, just with the giant stunts and the giant action scenes and everything. Uh, and these are almost like very experimental spy movies, these first three. But so many things in this that that 
I always end up loving more and more every single time I watch it, you know, particularly this time Philip Seymour Hoffman, uh, which there was a very different reaction to him when this movie first came out. Not negative, just different. And then, you know, so many of the sequences in this movie, like just very simple sequences and uh, uh, the way that they really made him into kind of a, a very real spy and not in the obvious ways here. It's just sort of the little things they do to make him more spy-like. But uh, there's definitely some flaws in this movie that I don't think are major things. There's nothing in here that really affects my love for this movie. But there's some things in here where I never quite picked up. I'm like, oh, that really doesn't work. And Or maybe I picked up on it, but I just never pinpointed why it doesn't work. So uh, I'm not going to be without like some criticism of this. But I mean, I think this movie is a blast and... For my history, obviously, it was a, I already mentioned I was a huge fan of Mission Impossible 1. Um, by the time even Mission Impossible 2 came out, I was like full-fledged obsessed with Mission Impossible 2. I'm like, yeah, it's okay. <laughs> and I eventually saw it like so many times on DVD, partly because you know DVD players were new and I owned like six DVDs. So <laughs> it was kind of just Mission Impossible 2, The Perfect Storm, and X-Men. Um, a lot of movies in the year 2000 that I bought. Uh, just over and over again. But uh, I don't know if this movie would have sold me just on its own. Like, as big of a fan as I am now of this, it probably had more to do with J.J. Abrams and just my love for the TV show Alias coming into this. Because I would say Alias, which debuts in 2001, the year after Mission Impossible 2, by the time this is coming around, this is five years later, Alias is in his last season, I'm probably a bigger fan of Alias than I may have been the original Mission Impossible. And we'll talk a little bit about J.J. Abrams' involvement and how unusual it was for a TV director to get something this big in their first movie. But that's what I was really excited about because I was sort of upset that Alias was coming to a close. It was unfortunate that they were doing it when Jennifer Garner was pregnant, so the final season didn't really have a lot of like the the typical alias um, uh, things that you, you're used to throughout the series with the action, the storytelling, everything. They kind of have to remove her and bring new characters in. And as soon as I started seeing the trailers for this, I'm like, wow, it just looks like Alias with Tom Cruise. And there's so much when I saw this movie where I'm like, this is the Alias movie. So uh, even still, I watch this movie and I'm a huge Mission Impossible, my bigger Mission Impossible fan now than I am Alias. But I still watch this movie and it just feels like the Alias movie to me. I can even pinpoint the different characters here where it's like, this would have been this character from the TV show and this would have been this one. I can definitely see part of that is that it was probably rushed. J.J. Abrams coming in last minute as like the third director to do this movie, which is the reason it took so long for it to get made. Uh, but I mean, I just loved it the first time I saw it. And I remember uh, buying the Mission Impossible 1 DVD, which just came out for the first time in 2006. And it had one of these like little vouchers where you could get a free admission for Mission Impossible 3 by buying the DVD. So I saw Mission Impossible 3 opening day. I went to the store. I found, oh, they got Mission Impossible 1. So I got this free voucher. I'm like, oh, I can go again. But it was one of these movies where people were already so down on Tom Cruise and down on Mission Impossible without even giving the movie a chance. Where I'm like, people need to see how good this movie is. So uh, I told my brother, if you want to go to see this, I'll give you the free voucher because you need to see this movie. And he's like, whatever. I don't want to watch this. But sure, it's free. He goes and he's like, wow, that movie was fantastic. And I can remember seeing it even a third time later that summer uh, where you know, I was working a night shift at this point, And uh, a friend of mine who was working with me, he said, oh, let's go to a, like a midnight movie. And I'm like, OK, well, Mission Impossible 3 he goes, ah, I don't want to watch Mission Impossible 3. And I'm like, OK, seriously, you're not going to believe how good this movie is. And we went, we watched it and he had the exact same reactions like, whoa, I didn't expect it to be that good. 
So I think this is one of these movies where Mission Impossible has kind of stood the test of time and even getting the chance at a fourth movie, not because this was such a huge success, but more because people sort of underestimated how good it was when they eventually gave it a chance. They were kind of blown away. That's sort of my reaction, everybody's reaction off seeing this. Well, I think the thing that's really good, I mean, watching this in isolation 12 years after, you know, Tom Cruise went off the rails, it's, you don't have any of that reaction now, I think, seeing this the first time. And, you know, I mean, we all remember where we were when Tom Cruise jumped on the couch. (laughs) Um, You know, I mean, it was... We live in this celebrity world where generally at some point in time there's always a celebrity who's gone a bit cuckoo la la and, you know, at this point it was Tom Cruise. So, you know, there was so much around him at the time and I can easily see why it affected it. We obviously talked a little bit at the end of last week about how there was, you know, the Trapped in the Closet South Park episode two that sort of had a bit of a say when it came to this episode, which I guess we'll talk a little bit about in the box office. But, I mean, I I personally have always liked Tom Cruise. I am not someone who generally is going to be affected too much by a celebrity going completely crazy. This is coming from someone who still is a Kevin Spacey fan of his acting, of his acting. Um, <laughs> so, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's interesting that people just had such a negative reaction to that because it's, I mean, it's even more so today. I mean, we saw that with Kevin Spacey in that film where he was, what, completely written out of it and replaced, and the guy went on to get an Oscar mm-hmm. nomination. So, I mean, you know, imagine what would have happened in 2006 if that was the case, you know? Like, was Tom Cruise going to be written out of Mission Impossible? Um, so, yeah, well. it's, it's interesting <laughs> that people have such a negative reaction over a, a person's real life compared to their, I guess, their acting persona and that people really do hold that of, oh, I don't want to see it because that person's in it because he loves a woman, jumps on a couch and doesn't allow her to have a baby and make noises when she pushes it out of her vagina. <laughs> that's all I know about yeah, Scientology. It's... Like, that's literally yeah. all I know. And then that alien Xanu comes to Earth. I saw the South Park episode. <laughs> South Park doesn't lie. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So the subtitle at the bottom of the screen. This is what Scientologists <laughs> actually believe. <laughs> it's just, it's weird because I think that now we can sort of look back and be like, well, people were a little bit harsh, even just on Tom Cruise, because you mentioned like a lot of it just had to do with the fact that, you know, he was dating this woman. He was very excited about it. And it, yeah, it was a little bit obnoxious and annoying to watch, but I think you could lose the context that this, it was just the wrong time. This is coming a year or two after the whole, uh, what was it? Jennifer Lopez and Ben Affleck, mm. uh, where it was just the media attention. It wasn't even the couple themselves. It was the media attention around a couple was so overwhelming that people just, they vomited back up. They're like, I don't want to hear any more about, you know, Lopez and Affleck. Uh, and I mean, obviously they made a movie together and that kind of wrecked it too. And I think this was just, we have like the internet coming around like late 90s, early 2000s. This was sort of just the perfect storm. It was the moment where everybody on the planet suddenly had an internet connection. You know, uh, we're still ways away from like smartphones, but like everybody had an internet connection. Everybody had an opinion. And if there was a strong opinion online, it was just agreed upon. Oh, this is what everybody believes. Everybody hates Tom Cruise now. And that combination of bad media and internet opinions. I don't think that this would have happened in 2004, 2005. I mean, evidence of that is that the couch jumping incident everybody talks about was actually when he was promoting the War of the Worlds. And that movie was terrible, and the box office did not suffer. It was terrible. I love that movie. You know what's what's so funny? Jamie, she's 
come around on Tom Cruise, and she actually was excited to watch War of the Worlds. She's like, oh, this this might actually be a good movie. She watched it a couple of months ago, and she's like, how come you didn't tell me how bad that movie was? <laughs> oh, <laughs> I think mean, you're really alone. We need world. to do that movie. I love that movie. But yeah, I mean, was Collateral around War of the Worlds, or was that after Mission Impossible 3? Collateral was 2003, so oh, I wow. mean, he was riding high at that point, yeah. Collateral, brilliant uh, movie. And, we have to do that. Oh, yeah, that one's amazing. And I mean... You just you have this last samurai collateral. Uh, then you have you know War of the Worlds, and it's it's just funny. This is kind of the evidence about how it's just that moment in time where the media and internet opinion just sort of dominated everything. Because 2005, when this couch jumping incident happens, you have a bad movie that people weren't really responding well to. Uh, that made a ton of money, and you know obviously this bad media attention didn't affect him. You go forward a year, and all of a sudden, this media attention from a year earlier is affecting the box office of Mission Impossible, a movie that critics and fans are going to see and saying, "Hey, it's actually pretty good." Mm. So it's just it's it's just weird to look back on that time because I don't think we would see that even a year or two later. We definitely when you mentioned like the similarities with Kevin Spacey and stuff like that, but like those are extreme things compared to just a man jumping on a couch, you know? Yeah, and it's. It's it's interesting you were saying about how kind of this is pre-smartphones, but everyone's getting an opinion, so it's always like the internet keyboard warriors and everyone's going to agree with it. And wouldn't we love to sit here and say, oh, well, that was just a fad. That never you know, affected anything moving forward. And now we obviously <laughs> live in a world where essentially this is just takes over everything. Um, so, mm-hmm. I mean, we did see the... Um, the initial sort of moments of it. But, I mean, I I thought, because it was really Tropic Thunder, wasn't it, that kind of turned him around again because I think yeah. people didn't even realise it was him and then all of a sudden, like, holy crap, that was Tom Cruise in Tropic Thunder. But, I mean, looking between that, he did the epic Lions for Lambs, which I remember I think my parents got a double pass to go see and I saw the... Um, the ticket, and I'm like, okay, Meryl Streep, is that Tom Cruise? <laughs> like, doing some more, and then, uh, Valkyrie, which I still never seen, but, um, oh, you know, the thing with Tom Cruise, though, it didn't take him very long to kind of turn himself back around again, did it? So, you know, there is a, there oh. is a silver lining to this, you know, this isn't the Kevin Spacey, cause, let's be honest, he's never getting turned around again, um, so, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, we'll we'll talk more about how this affected Tom Cruise in the comeback when we get to Ghost Protocol. Because even in Ghost Protocol, it was still very iffy, uh, which you know we'll talk a lot about just the casting of some other actors. And even how I mentioned bringing in more of a team effort Mission Impossible movie the next time around. But the other thing to obviously talk about here, as I already mentioned, was just the directors. Uh, because this movie was in development. You, originally, the plan was it was going to be the same wait as they had in between Mission Impossible 1 and 2. It was going to be about a three, four-year wait. And Mission Impossible 3's first director was David Fincher. And this wasn't something where it's like, oh, he was in discussions. I mean, David Fincher was like 100% signed on to this movie for several months. And eventually, he dropped out. They replaced him with Joe Carnahan. So Tom Cruise decided, okay, well, David Fincher... People also have to understand, David Fincher at this point, he made Fight Club. Fight Club bombed. You know, he made Seven. Seven was a big hit, but he wasn't like the David Fincher we have now. He's obviously sort of going for smaller directors than like Brian De Palma in the first one and John Woo in the second. He picks up Joe Carnahan, who had made a movie called Narc with Jason Patrick. Uh, And I think, uh, who is the other guy in Narc? Um, Ray Liotta. Oh, Ray Liotta. That was more... Love Ray Liotta. Yeah, that was like... Very critically acclaimed movie, not like a huge hit or anything. Uh, Joe Carnahan works on this movie for like a year or two. 
and literally pulls out like right i I remember still or i'm like oh mission impossible is gonna start filming the summer 2004 i'm like they're gonna start filming mission impossible 3 and then all of a sudden it's like joe carnahan's dropped out they're gonna be going back to the drawing board probably rewriting the movie literally like a few weeks later it's like jj abrams from alias is signed on i'm like what (laughs) (laughs) like this is a tv guy because to put also into perspective like we're we're starting to get a lot of these tv directors getting their big movie gigs like um even the the guy who made Thor the Dark World, you know, he came out of Game of Thrones and stuff. But, like, J.J. Abrams, I wouldn't even consider him a TV director at the time. He was a writer. He had written movies in the past. Uh, he wrote several TV shows, created, like, Alias Lost. You mentioned Felicity last week. Ben, the wow. fan of Felicity. Hey, but... I, I will defend <laughs> that. Amy Jo Johnson, great Canadian actress. Come on. Is she Canadian? I she is. Know. <laughs> she was in that, um, that, was it Flashpoint, the one, the Toronto one with the snipers? Oh, yeah, that's she right. She was in that. Yeah. I watched that only because she was in it too. So there you go. She's, of course she's Canadian. How do you not know? She's up there with Gretzky as great Canadians. The, the only thing I honestly know her from is, uh, I mentioned, oh, I think that was, it wasn't even this. It was on the Americans episode, but Covert Affairs, one of my other favorite spy shows. She was on Covert Affairs for a season, but, uh, no, I mean, he had Felicity, he had Alias, he had Lost, and he's this big TV writer. He had only directed a few episodes of, like, Alias and Lost. So it's not even like he was that experienced as a TV director. But Tom Cruise had watched Alias and said, this is kind of the feel I want for the movie. So he hired J.J. Abrams. J.J. Abrams brought on two of his writers from Alias, who, you know, we'll mention their names later on. I mean, they Alex Kurtzman and uh, Robert Urchie, they've gone to basically become the the most i'm going to say at least as far as like high profile blockbusters go these are the guys who write pretty much everything transformers spider-man everything um and they just started work on mission impossible and the movie was delayed for a year and eventually it comes out but when this came out again there was a lot of talk just because even though he was just a tv guy so many people were just interested by this idea that you have this tv director that's being given his first big movie, and they, they didn't give him a small movie. They gave him one of the biggest franchises in the world, you know, a movie with over a $100 million budget that had gone through David Fincher and Joe Carnahan. Uh, I don't know if you remember any of that from the time, but I mean, we could definitely just comment on how weird it is now to look back at this time when it was the weirdest thing in the world to hire this complete unknown director who had barely an experience in television, let alone movies, and now we're like, all you have to do is say J.J. Abrams. You're like, Star Wars, Star Trek. Cloverfield, Super 8, everything. I mean, he's pretty much the biggest name there is. And 12 years ago, this was the gamble that Tom Cruise took. And, of course, don't forget that he was a producer on the epic David Schwimmer movie, The Pole Bearer, which uh, should be always mentioned. Hey, that's a pretty good movie. (laughs) I don't think I've ever seen it. I like The Pole Bearer. (laughs) You just say you're the one. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Well, Tony Collette's in it. There you go. Um, Anyway, um... I, I think it's, we talked a lot on our Lost episodes about sort of the influence of J.J. Abrams because I think kind of when we discussed his involvement in it is that he gets a lot more, um, I guess credit for Lost than ultimately he, I mean, he co-created it. He wrote a couple episodes yeah. and directed like the two opening episodes, but outside of that, he had no involvement in the show whatsoever. So, um, you know, it was already down to Damon Lindelof, um, and the other guy, which I've gone blank on, but, um, big Lost fan here. Carlton Cruz. Thank you. Thank you very much. I knew it was a name of a football team that I support. Um, but, you know, I, I think that the impact, though, that Lost had, I mean, I was never an alias. I, and it's not that I wasn't 
I was anti-Alias. I just never got into it. I just kind of watched a couple episodes. It confused the shit out of me. So I went back to, you know, watching cartoons or something. So, uh, I mean, it's a show that I wouldn't have minded watching. I know my sister loved it. My dad loved it. My, one of my friends at school was absolutely obsessed with it. Um, but yeah, so I think kind of it, I don't remember a whole lot around about it at the time kind of the the reaction around it because you know yeah like you look back at this now and you just see that jj abrams directed a mission Impossible, you're like okay fair enough that's that's fine because yeah nowadays he's just got that name recognition to him that you sort of know that uh you know he comes with this uh you know reputation so i mean you look kind of at the fact that yeah this was obviously the first film he's directed but i mean you know the fact that after this the only non-star trek star wars movie that he did was super 8 which i actually have not seen super 8 i want to though um but yeah i I mean to me it doesn't really bother me because it's been 12 years later and we know who he is now and plus i love lost so at the time i would have heard this and gone oh the guy directed lost fair enough well that's a good show so yeah let's watch it uh, we'll get into the movie in a second, but uh, just to quickly comment on Kurtzman and Orchie, who did this, uh, just running through their filmography. So It's not like Mission Impossible 3 was their first big screen movie, but they obviously got their start in television, uh, you know, working mostly for J.J. Abrams on Alias. And uh, later, it doesn't look like they did anything on Lost, but they had worked on Fringe also. Uh, they actually go all the way back to Hercules' Legendary Journeys. And it's funny because there's uh, an actress who was on one of the seasons of Hercules, who's from Winnipeg, and we met her at a Comic-Con. And uh, we were just sort of asking her about the show, and she was mentioning, like, the guys who created her character uh, were these two guys. And she's like, yeah, you look where they've gone on to now. Like, basically, she didn't even have to sell who these guys were. It's like, you know, these two guys, you know, Robert Orchie and uh, Alex Kurtzman, and just people, like, immediately, like, oh, yeah, of course. They did The Island and Legend of Zorro right before this movie comes out. Now, following Mission Impossible 3, they wrote Transformers, Eagle Eye, Watchmen, Star Trek, uh, Transformers 2, The Proposal. That was executive produced. Sorry, that's not writing. But uh, <laughs> Glad left when you not- said that. She would have got too excited for that one. Yeah. <laughs> Now, not all these are, you know, great movies, but like Cowboys and Aliens, uh, Star Trek Into Darkness, uh, The Amazing Spider-Man 2, The Mummy. Um, <laughs> which one for The Amazing Spider-Man 2 I or The Mummy? I haven't seen The Mummy yet, so yeah, The Amazing Spider-Man 2. <laughs> oh, okay. But like huge, and for a screenwriter to do that many movies is just insane. Uh, and I think that's one of the things I really appreciate with J.J. Abrams. He said, if I'm going to be given this shot, I'm going to give the same shot to my people. And even though he didn't direct Mission Impossible 4, he did the same thing where uh, when they were developing Mission Impossible 4 and he was now signed on as a producer, he still said, I'm going to take two of my other writers from Alias and I'm going to give them their own movie deal. So I just think that's kind of cool. Um, lots of people are going to be introduced here. You mentioned Philip Seymour Hoffman. Ving Rhames is, of course, the only other one back. Uh, we're going to talk about your favorite Maggie Q at one point. We're no. going to talk about Carrie Russell <laughs> from The Americans, not Felicity. <laughs> uh, Lawrence Fishburne, uh, so many other people. And I guess one other person that kind of got a big break off this was Michael Giacchino. So the music's going to be incredible here. But let's start the movie here. It opens with uh, our pre-title scene, which I always forget how quick this scene is. It literally is over almost t- not 10 seconds exactly, but a drawn out 10 seconds. <laughs> Uh, because it opens with this torture scene, which I remember seeing this in theaters the first time and having no clue is going on. And the, if there's one thing this movie's lacking is that it's that 
kind of surprise for the audience from the first two movies of just messing with their mind where you're like, I literally have no clue what's going on. A lot of the stuff you, you know, like you mentioned was going on in alias. They tone it down in this movie a lot. I think this is the one thing that really remains of like the, the, the typical mission impossible, uh, confusion, uh, gimmicks that they do. And this torture scene where you don't even know who this is, but like Tom Cruise is strapped to a chair and you find out later on, it's his, wife who's across from him and philip seymour hoffman's got a gun and he's just counting to 10 where's the rabbit's foot and you know first tom cruise's or ethan i guess we should call him mr hunt <laughs> part one uh he's like uh, uh i gave you the rabbit's foot and he's like no you didn't where's the rabbit's foot it's like seriously i gave it to you no where's the rabbit foot? rabbit's foot's in paris no it's not in paris like uh, i can get it for you but you're gonna have to let her go and he just starts bluffing over and over again but the scene is so intense and so much criticism for Tom Cruise at the time, but this is probably one of his best acted scenes, if not his best acted scene from the whole first three movies here, maybe all the, the movies. I mean, his performance here is incredible. You can literally see not tears rolling down his cheek, but like his eyes are just filled with water. They look like they're about to gush, but just holding back. And he's panicky one second, and he's uh, really intense the next, and then he's screaming the next, and uh, he's just all over the place. And Philip Seymour Hoffman, I'll have so many good things to say about him in this. He plays such an incredibly creepy, subtle villain here. And it's the little things he does that I'll talk more about when we get back to the scene later on. But I don't think that a lot of people were as sold on him when this first came out. And it's kind of weird to say that because you're like, well, he's Philip Seymour Hoffman. But when he signed on to do this and when they started filming this movie, the movie that he would eventually go on to win the Oscar for, Capote wasn't even out yet so he kind of had finished capote and then he did mission impossible and people were like oh yeah i know who philip seymour hoffman is that could be interesting then he wins the oscar and suddenly it's like wow this is crazy you know we got the oscar winner this year to do this movie uh, capote by the other uh, uh um just to mention was filmed here in winnipeg as well which was one of the first big movies to film in winnipeg i remember the time that was filmed here uh, and what a big deal that was like we got philip seymour hoffman in winnipeg <laughs> You know, Ben got to talk last week about uh, Tom Cruise strutting around his country. We got Philip Seymour Hoffman for we about got two Dusty months. Dusty from here. Twister to come to you. That's right. Team. We got Dusty, <laughs> the suck zone. Better than what you sniff. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we get to get better than what you sniff lines. <laughs> but it's weird. I think because he won that Oscar, there were such high expectations by the time this movie came out that there were a lot of people who, when this movie came out, just sort of had the opinion. He was okay as a villain, but I think you kind of have to see this movie. Maybe you have to see it multiple times. You can kind of tell me as we go throughout it to really get, like, the subtleties of performance. But he is so creepy in this opening scene that it's almost this weird Hannibal Lecter thing where it's like he doesn't blink. He 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 has that one moment where he really gets angry. It's like, do you think I'm playing or whatever? But then he's just right back to, where's the rabbit's foot? Where's the rabbit's foot? You honestly believe this is what a real villain would be like in real life. It ends as he's counting to ten. He's like, you know, you got to do what you, what you know is right. And then he's just sort of staring at him, and he's blinking, and then he just goes, 10, and you just hear a trigger pull. And then right to the uh, Mission Impossible theme, which I did mention this is the first and the only movie that actually breaks from making it look like TV credits by showing clips of the movie throughout. Um, but still, I just loved how fast these credits came on and how quick the music came on when it first came out. And then it just ends abruptly, and we get to a party scene, uh, which is one of the most alias things they do in this movie, the idea of a spy's 
life outside of being a spy and how they would hide it from people. And there's some really clever things that J.J. Abrams does in this movie. This I remember just kind of feeling annoyed with when I first saw it because as big of a fan as I was of Alias, like the first two seasons of Alias, half of it was like soap opera storylines of, uh, oh, my friends don't know that I'm a spy. I can't keep lying to them and just party scenes like this. But there's still some fun stuff in here. Like we get introduced to Rick, who we're going to see later on, as you mentioned. Uh, we get the cameo of Greg Grunberg. So uh, I don't know how familiar you are with Greg Grunberg. Oh, we was uh, the he pilot appears- in Lost. Um, yeah, he was in Heroes. I was yeah, asking, I know who he is. Yeah, I can't yeah. remember who he played in Lost. Yeah. The pilot but he's- in the very first episode. He's the one who gets sucked out yeah. of the cockpit. Yeah. So he's J.J. Abrams' number one guy. And I, it's it's funny that he is that because the only time J.J. Abrams ever used him in a main role was in Alias. He was, you know, one of the... Uh, main supporting characters in Alias for at least four out of the five seasons. Uh, and this was the first time where it became clear, okay, I'm going to use this guy in every movie. And there's some fun cameos he's had in other J.J. Abrams movies, like just the voice of the stepdad in Star Trek and so on and so on. But uh, we get a quick cameo from him here. Um, the party is just basically an engagement party. So you get that Ethan's got a private life now, which we never explored in the first few movies. Um, the... Weird conversation. Oh, now, first of all, we get the mention of Ethan's mom dying, which I don't know if that's part of his cover story or if poor mom and Uncle Donald died after the drug raid of 1996. And, uh, the, 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 mom and Uncle Donald. But, uh, the, Funny thing I thought in the scene was um, the the scene where he's going on. This is where you get what his cover is for his job, which is that he works for the Department of Transportation. He's going on really excited, explaining about how you know a car, you know, uh, sliding on a highway, you can trace the, the the tires and everything. And Greg Grunberg, as he walks away, actually like rolls his eyes and gives a snoring motion. And then all the women was like, "I'd marry him too." And he's <laughs> like, "What? Jamie. Really? <laughs> yeah, exactly." <laughs> Uh, we get a brief moment here, and this is one of the things J.J. Abrams really wanted to bring in, was the little subtle things that only a spy would really do that you wouldn't necessarily think about. So he sees Julia talking and uh, giving the story about how they met or whatever to her sister or her friends, and he's just lip-reading them. And he's following the entire conversation through lip-reading, and she can't remember the lame, uh, the, the lame, the, <laughs> the lame. name of the well. <laughs> the name of the really lame lake that they went to. And you get him shouting, Lake Wanaka, all excited. <laughs> and then they're like, yeah, thanks. Like, how did he hear us? <laughs> Which is a little bit creepy, but that's going to come up later. But I just love the little things like that that J.B. brought to this with the, the spy things you wouldn't have thought of. Uh, so he gets a call on the phone. And this is another one of the most alias things they do in this. Uh, it's um, calling to sell him, what was it, life insurance or something? Yeah, it's like a trip and, to Mexico or something, isn't it? Or you can yeah, a yeah. trip to Mexico. It's it's a timeshare. Uh, he's being sold on here. <laughs> but in Alias, that's how Jennifer Garner's character would always get the meat with her handler. They would call and they'd be like, is this whatever pizza? And then she'd be like, no, sorry, wrong number. And that was her cue to go to the meeting spot, meet up with your handler, and then privately go over your mission. And that's exactly what he does here. He goes to a 7-Eleven or a Shell or something like that. And... Uh, they sit there looking over Polaroids, and we get introduced to Billy Crudup, who also was sort of a big deal at this point. And um, he starts telling him about Agent Ferris, who went missing or whatever, and we find out later on who Agent Ferris is. And 
he tells him, you know, take the Polaroid camera or whatever. So he takes this thing. He gets his quick mission. A lot of stuff happening here, but this is basically five minutes of the movie. Uh, the quick mission basically says that Agent Ferris uh, has been captured and that normally they would just disavow her, which is th- what we find out in the other movies. Uh, but she has important information. They need to get this Owen Davian guy who's the main villain. And your mission should you choose to accept it or whatever. They put his team together for him as well, um, which is going to cover later on. We'll be introduced to them in a second. Uh, and he has to take this mission or whatever. He tells Julia, oh, i got to go to a conference and everything. Um, lots to happen there the, the, for 30-second opening scene and then a two-minute party scene. Tons of stuff going on here. Um, are you confused at this point in the movie? And how much do you love Greg Grimberg? I well, I mean, like any normal man, a lot. Uh, I, I mean, if people say that they don't, then... <laughs> They're, they're idiots. Um, <laughs> posters on my say wall. Really quickly, <laughs> Jamie doesn't know his name, but like he was in the TV show Heroes that we watched as yeah. well. And he's one of these guys that pops up and everything. Jamie calls him Fat Keanu Reeves. <laughs> <laughs> I see it. Which, I see it. <laughs> yeah, you can totally see it. And that's, she's not insulting him. I mean, she's a huge Keanu Reeves fan. She likes Greg Grumberg. But uh, yeah, that's, this is Fat Keanu Reeves in our house. Um, yeah, definitely. He, he would react to that by saying, whoa. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I'm not confused at this moment. There, there, there is one bit in this movie that confuses me, which I hope you can explain. Um, but yeah, I, the opening scene is intense. It's great acting. Um, and the thing that, I mean, any normal human being is a fan of Philip Seymour Hoffman as well. Like he's just so good in this, this scene here. Just, yeah, you're right. The sort of the way he's counting and just so cold and calculated the way he's doing it. Um, I mean, I don't want to criticise this character throughout this movie, but, I mean, we really don't learn a lot about who he is and what he is, which kind of I can overlook just because he does play this role so good. It wasn't kind of like last movie where, again, we complained a lot about that, that there's just no development here. We feel like there should be more between, I can't remember his name, uh, between him and Ethan, sort of. Ambrose. Um Yeah, so I can forgive it a lot more in this movie just because the performance is so good. Um but yeah, the, the party stuff is just, um, I mean, again, I never watched Alias, so, you know, this is just all, you know, it's just like, oh, Ethan's become a house husband, essentially. Yeah. Um, and, you know, as is the case with most of these movies, they're all so popular, aren't they? They've got so many friends. Uh, these are all, mm-hmm. of course, Julia's friends. So where's Ethan's friends? Why isn't Ving Rhames at this party anyway? Like, I know we kind of get jokes about he that, thr- that throughout <laughs> this. Um, but I, I was, for the life of me, trying to work out where I know Julia from. And I'm like, where? Michelle Monaghan, where, who, what do I know her from? Like, she's from something. Who is she? I've looked up her film credits, and I know her best from the 2008 romantic comedy starring herself and Patrick Dempsey, Maid of Honor. <laughs> uh, <I'm sorry. laughs> Why am I not surprised that's what you know her from? I, the only reason I know that from, because that was one of Louise's favourite films. We used to watch that quite often. I actually think it's okay. I don't think it's the worst. I don't like Patrick Dempsey, but uh, I mean, it's it's an okay film. <laughs> so I'm like, there we go. Maid of Honour. What a great movie that was. Coming soon to anniversary month. Ten years of uh, Maid of Honour. <laughs> <laughs> but, like... 
one thing I, I definitely think that these two have is chemistry. You know, we talked about that yeah. last uh, week with sort of Tom Cruise and Tandy Newton. Like, these two, like, really have chemistry. And just even kind of, you know, that scene when he's, like, lip-reading, uh, just the way that somehow there's oozing chemistry between these two and they're, like, mm-hmm. separated from each other. Uh, and, like, Tom Cruise just seems really happy in this scene. And I guess that's the point. You know, he's retired and here he is kind of, you know, living the, the suburban life. Um... But I, I do kind of like just the, they want to marry him because he's a transport guy. Ah! It's like, really? Like, okay. Um, but I do love the call. Like, when he gets it, you know, like, yes, you can win a trip to Mexico. What if somebody else answers that? And it's just, oh, God, telemarketers, go away. Ethan, we need to <laughs> ring up and get this blocked. This t- oh, telemarketer, honey, I'll take that call next time. Why do you always want to take these calls, Ethan? Like, what's going on? Can we also, the elephant in the room, what happened to Tandy Newton in 4 5? They were so in love when they left Sydney. And, like, here yeah. they are. Like, this, I mean, I'm sure maybe they thought about bringing her back. I don't know. But do you think this would have worked better if this was his happy life with Tandy Newton? Because that would have made sense after the last movie. She was supposed to come back. Um,. I think when David Fincher was working on it, she was going to come back. Uh, basically what happened is I think she turned it down and uh, eventually they rewrote her role for somebody else. And this is when Joe Carnahan was working on it. Was, uh, there was a whole cast. Like when I said they were close to making the Joe Carnahan version, like they were so close. They had cast uh, Kenneth Branagh as the villain. They'd cast Scarlett Johansson in what would eventually become the Carrie Russell role here. And Carrie Ann Moss from The Matrix was cast in what was supposed to be the Tandy Newton role, rewritten. And J.J. Abrams eventually said, you know, we don't need to bring back this character. We don't need to make a substitute character. Let's do something completely different and let's have them happily married. So I don't think that her character, because J.J. Abrams has said that they rewrote this character, I don't think that it was ever supposed to be something where, you know, they were the happily married couple in this, but it would have been interesting. They would because I think that's kind of it's the only movie that ends that way, where it's like this is the couple, and you know they're they're going to go on and be in love forever. That's that's kind of the way the two ended, for better or worse. Yeah, and I think you know, I mean, I shouldn't really nitpick it. I mean, we are James Bond fans, where he rides off into the sunset with a woman in every movie, and the next exactly. time he's off boning a secretary. So I mean, it it mm-hmm. shouldn't be something. But I just I don't know if like maybe that could have been a cool little continuity thing and sort of, you know, do it that way. But, um, yeah, I do like it goes to the 7-Eleven and um, the the technology when it comes to giving them the message has seemed to have uh, dropped significantly in five years or six years. You know, you had a fancy <laughs> pair of Oakleys in the Utah desert. Now we've just got a disposable camera from Kodak. Um, which, you know, again, it all, always comes down to the fact that what happens if somebody had quickly grabbed that before Tom Cruise grabbed it when he checks out of the 7-Eleven? Um, and laying in bed, Jesus Christ, he tells his wife last minute, or well, he's not married yet, uh, tells Julia last minute, oh, by the way, honey, work called, we're going to go to Houston tomorrow morning. <laughs> like, not suspicious at all. Like, how would you be if you just, like, got into bed, you'd had a party, and then just as you're about to drift off to sleep, Jamie's kind of gone missing for a few hours getting some ice. She's like, oh, by the way, honey, got to fly to Houston tomorrow, business. You'd be like, hell no, I'm not looking after Casper tomorrow, tomorrow's my day off. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's all fun set up. Um, I have nothing bad to say right now, though I don't know if I did say bad stuff right then, but you'd know I'd mean it with love. Yeah, um, 
I, I actually kind of like that whole idea, though, that he decides at the last minute just because – and I probably didn't pick up on it when I first saw this, but it's because he's having that, that dream sequence or whatever. And the one thing that we didn't really mention here, which you know, I'm hoping people have seen this movie before they listen to this episode again, but uh, he sort of quit being the spy you know, a couple of years earlier or whatever, and he's just working as a trainer for IMF. Uh, so he has an office job, you know, he, well, I guess office slash training job, uh, but he's just a regular company man at this point. So this is him having to make the decision, do you want to come out of retirement? So I kind of like that he decides the last minute there, but you, yeah, you do have to wonder, you know, what her reaction would be. And there's a moment where, uh, I don't think it's in this scene, but it's another scene coming up later on where very subtle, but you actually start to see where she becomes suspicious. And it's not something that I really picked up on the first time I watched the movie. But just going along with what you said, like the the chemistry with Michelle Monaghan, not not really something else that I think I was that conscious of the first time. And I, I don't think I was as huge of a fan of her character when this movie first came out. It's something that just slowly over time, the more you see the movie, the more you appreciate it. But talk about chemistry. The chemistry between Philip Seymour Hoffman and Tom Cruise is insane <laughs> in this movie. Like, I mean, they should be the ones getting married. No, not... Not where I'm Broke going with that, but Redux. It should have been Philip Seymour <laughs> Hoffman and Tom Cruise. That was about 2006, wasn't it? Yeah, this is the this is only six months after Brokeback Mountain here, <laughs> but like the chemistry they have, where it's it, it's everything we were missing in Mission Impossible Two. And I think the thing that really works with Julia's character is the fact that she is kind of an innocent, but they don't play her as innocent. They don't go too far in trying to making her tough and everything. You literally just believe this is some everyday woman that he met. And their relationships not as nauseating as the types of things that they would do in Alias. Like, uh, you know, Bradley Cooper actually got his start on Alias. And he wasn't playing, like, the boyfriend character. Oh, but Casper doesn't he was like Bradley like, Cooper being on Alias. He hates Bradley Cooper, yes. Well, we were just <laughs> but, talking uh, about Bradley. We highly praised Bradley Cooper because we just went through his sort of role in Nip Tuck just before he made it really big as well. And we just oh, absolutely he thought he was too? brilliant in Nip Tuck. So, yeah. It honestly, it took me years to appreciate Bradley Cooper. Like, well into oh, him making good movies. Love him. It, it, well into, like, past American Sniper even, probably wasn't, like, American Hustle uh, around that area where I actually started to appreciate him because I just held such a grudge against him for being so annoying on Alias, which really <laughs> had more to do with Alias not being able to pull off this whole private life of a spy thing that Mission Impossible actually does really well here. That's interesting. Uh, but... Because that, that was kind yeah, of the opposite it, for me. I think I liked Bradley Cooper based off him being in Nip Tuck, that he was so good in it. Mm-hmm. Um, and can I just quickly, before I, I forget, you, I know I you're kind of interrupting you here, but I completely forgot to mention Aaron Paul, uh, a.k.a. Jesse Pinkman's, <laughs> one of his two <laughs> scenes in this movie here, basically playing what Aaron Paul does in every movie, Jesse Pinkman. So, you know, props for Breaking yeah. Bad fans out there with an Aaron Paul cameo. And I had never seen Breaking Bad, but like I'm familiar with who he is, obviously. Uh, so when you mention that at the end of the last episode, and I'm like, well, who does he play? And you're like, Rick. I'm like, he's Rick, really. <laughs> Rick's like the unsung hero of this movie. <laughs> I guess unsung villain because he he's the one who screws everything up here. No, oh, just but, like uh, he does in Breaking Bad. God damn it. References I won't get since I haven't seen Breaking Bad. You have Bad to yet. watch Breaking. You need to join when Nick and I are talking about doing that after Nip Tuck finishes. You you kind of need to be the third wheel on there as a virgin viewer of Breaking Bad. Maybe if we do Alias, we can do Breaking Bad at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> but um, we, we get a really cool shot here, which I don't know if you're a fan of Top Gun, but seeing Tom Cruise riding to uh, a runway 
where the helicopter am, is here on motorcycles. I'm like, not a fan of Top Gun. Am I going to alienate our viewers? Uh, I kind of think it's an overrated movie, but anyway. Oh, shut up. <laughs> Get off my podcast. Anthony Edwards is good. I mean, I like Dr. Green and Tom Cruise being friends, but, you know. <laughs> um, but, yeah, it's it's just it's such a Top Gun shot here. And it was probably intentional, too. We get his introduction to the team here, which is basically just Luther, welcome back, brother, which was like <laughs> such a huge trailer line that was played in all the trailers, all the TV spots. Uh, they jump right into the mission here, so they're going to Berlin. And another thing that's just totally different that J.J. Abrams did here, where he just wanted this to feel more like a realistic spy movie. We should also mention this is coming out a year or two years after the Bourne Supremacy, a year before the Bourne series ends. So, like, Bourne is the new James Bond at this point. I mean, Casino Royale wouldn't be out for six months after this. So, like, Bourne is the cool spy thing. And I love that J.J. Abrams avoided being Bourne here. But there's a few things that they do where I think there's similarities where the Bourne movies really wanted to make a realistic spy. So it's not going to be a guy like Pierce Brosnan as much as I love Pierce Brosnan or Roger Moore where it's like, whoopow, you know, big punch, uppercut, (laughs) uh, karate kick. (laughs) This is like real hand-to-hand combat they do. And this, the way it's like a very military, like special forces style raid of this building to rescue Agent Ferris. Uh, I love the Ving Rhames has his van. He's always sitting in a vehicle. Like every single movie, all he does is like he's sitting in the van. And if he ever leaves the van, he's so winded. Like, did we talk about that in the last movie? No. no. Ving Rhames gets out of his seat. <sighs> I mean, we got that when he delivered the, the camera in um, the second one when he came back. But yeah, he's always just sitting in a vehicle, and he has these little machine guns that just go off all over the building. Ethan storms the building. Why? Okay, the other two characters here. So you mentioned your favorite Maggie Q. Uh, Jonathan Reese Myers, who was about to become a big deal at this point because of Bend It Like Beckham. Um, I'm actually a huge fan of his for a movie he did a couple years earlier than that uh, with uh, it was an Ang Lee movie called Ride with the Devil, a Civil War movie that had like Tobey Maguire, Jeffrey Wright, uh, Jonathan Reese Myers, obviously. Um, uh, who's that guy? He's on that TV show, The Mentalist, we talked about, Mr. Handsome. Simon, Simon Baker? Simon Baker, yeah. Tasmania's uh, Simon Baker? Yeah. Uh, Mark Ruffalo, like Ride with uh, another movie that uh, I'd love to cover one day, Ride with the Devil. Underrated movie, but just huge cast in there. So, like, Jonathan Reese Myers had done um, Bend It Like Beckham and was slowly becoming a big star. And then he obviously had some problems after this, and, you know, his career went sideways. But <laughs> you have these two new characters, and they're hiring actors who are sort of the idea is these are up and coming actors. Is there any better way of explaining the point of these characters than the fact that in this sequence here, neither of them do anything? <laughs> like, what are they doing there? And I don't mind either of these actors. Like, Maggie Q, she's not, I mean, she's American, but was known for doing uh, a lot of, like, Hong Kong action movies before Mission Impossible came out. Obviously, after this, you do the, the, the Nikita TV show, which I tried to check out and didn't really care for. You know, Jonathan Reese Myers, he's a fantastic actor. He's great in everything. He's even decent in what he has here. But, like, every time they're in a scene, I, I, I don't even know what they're doing there. Like, what can you he flies a helicopter she runs up the stairs and shoots a few people along with tom cruise like neither of them need to be in this movie they're probably even more wasted than like billy the guy that we had in in mission impossible 2 because at least he you know had the funny accent the interesting relationship i mean 
can't wait till we get to the the cat story like you mentioned later on <laughs> but it's just, they're completely wasted here but this is all tom cruise when he comes in and he's you know shooting everybody all over the place and it, it's great like like i said special forces like action uh ferris is completely out of it he gives the, the adrenaline shot now carrie russell as you mentioned felicity that's the reason she's here she wasn't a big star i think she maybe was briefly a big star maybe five six years before this movie came out uh here i don't know if anybody was hiring her she was just and she was like greg grumberg she was jj abrams lucky charm because she had been on his first big tv show or whatever uh now she's gone to be in the americans which uh people can listen to the finale review that noah and i did where we both pretty much agreed that the americans finale which uh Kara russell was like the main star of may have been the greatest finale in the history of television uh, and it's another spy show. So, I mean, she went on to do much better things after this. Uh, just another brief role she has here. But I love when she starts fighting alongside Ethan here. And uh, another character, I think, has good chemistry with him in very brief scenes that they're in here. Uh, but this raid kind of abruptly ends, you know, with, with the, uh, um, the, the the cool gunshot that they have where she's asking him, like, uh, how many rounds do you have left? And he goes, enough. And then he stands up in slow motion, fires a single shot, and he goes, now I'm out. (laughs) Love that moment. Uh, When they're escaping in the truck and everything, and then they escape in the helicopter, we get the really cool helicopter chase through all the, um, the, what do you call those things? Windmills? Turbines. Yeah, the solar, or the the wind power things that are in the field. And the sheep, this is in New Zealand, isn't it? There's sheep. Where else does Berlin have sheep like New Zealand? It was it was a big starring role for some New Zealand extras there. They just they got their big break. Yeah, <laughs> we need to get Nick on here to talk about these. Uh, it was but the helicopter team. chase. The helicopter chase, fantastic here. Uh, the, I guess one thing to mention here is the fact that like they're sort of combining real stunts with CGI, and coming off of Mission Impossible Two, I don't know. Even though I think the action scenes are so memorable in this and the the sequences themselves are so great, maybe watching this back-to-back Mission Impossible 2, the action takes a bit of a hit because we're getting a combination of real stunts, like here or in the the bridge scene that's going to happen later on. It's a lot of, like, somebody's doing a real thing, but it's CGI. You know, we're, we're seeing a really, re- really seeing a helicopter flying. Thank Bless you for you. clearing your throat in the background, Jamie. Oh, was a, <laughs> oh she was clearing your throat. Yeah. Never mind. Uh-huh. <laughs> trying to get our attention. <laughs> but... You're seeing a helicopter fly, but you like you know that some of these shots are not real, and maybe that's the big difference. What John Woo did, there's a way to tell that they did those things for real in the first one. Uh, but still, it's a great sequence, and another one of the cool surprises in this movie is when um, uh, Kara Russell's head starts exploding, <laughs> which is great, <laughs> and it provides for the best shot of the movie too. So J.J. Abrams kind of goes very extreme with a lot of the spy stuff here, where it is more like the James Bond, you know, from the early movies or the books where he's using his smarts and not gadgets. Here it's like, okay, there's an explosive device in your head. Let's use his defibrillator. <laughs> Let's defibrillate your head. And then it's like, oh, but she'll die. It's like, okay, we'll use the defibrillator then to bring her back to life. <laughs> it's the tool of many uses. And they're seconds away from doing this to kill the thing in there. And uh, she basically croaks, which is such an amazing shot. I have to make it my profile pic. Just the fact that both of her eyes go completely sideways, um, you can look up. There's a really good picture people want to look online. Just type in Carrie Russell Mission Impossible 3 Death. <laughs> and 
if you go on Google Images, not only do you see this picture here, but if you scroll a few over, they have a picture. I don't know who this woman is. I feel so bad. They basically have a picture of some woman in real life whose eyes are both going completely sideways like this, side by side. <laughs> <laughs> Master Lorenzo Ladyhawk. Oh, <laughs> uh, I don't know if that's a real person or not, or if we should feel terrible. <laughs> when I was looking for this picture from a pro- profile pic, uh, like I couldn't believe that they found somebody who actually looked like her death shot here. Della, <laughs> like a derp face. <laughs> But, I mean, it's such a great scene. It's such a great surprise that you would kill this major character off because this ends up being a cameo. And, uh, again, not that she was, like, a huge star anymore, but because of the J.J. Abram involvement, people assumed she'd have a bigger role than this. But it's also such a pivotal character, and we get a lot of things introduced very quickly, like the uh, the, the idea where she says, turn off your transmitter, and he won't turn it off. And, uh, you know, just the relationship with Ethan and everything. It just I think all this stuff works so well, and... I mean, the action's only going to get bigger from here, but I mean, it, it's a great way to start the movie with this massive raid and uh, this helicopter chase, which just also the music. This isn't even in my top five favorite tracks from this soundtrack. I mean, this soundtrack is amazing, but like Michael Giacchino's music during this helicopter chase is absolutely incredible. Can I just say there was a deleted scene, actually, just when, um, I'm just going to call it Felicity, uh, she's about to <laughs> die, that Tom Cruise just grabs her and goes, then feel better! Just uh, as your head's about to explode. Like, no, no, we need to do something different in this movie. Um, yeah, look, Maggie Q. Can I just start with Maggie Q? Um, sure. As a as a fan of Designated Survivor, which hopefully they will save because they kind of ended it pretty well and then they cancelled it, but they are trying to bring it back. Um, she just absolutely annoyed the absolute shit out of me on that show. Her character, she was an FBI agent. I don't know if you watched Designated Survivor, but... No, I like, thought she was okay in it. Uh, she just annoys me so much on that show, and I just think she's a terrible actor in that show. She just is just... Oh, just her storylines just get completely ridiculous, and she just absolutely annoys the hell out of me in that show. So, kind of, when I see her here, I'm like, oh, God, no, not her. Um, although, she, I mean, she's fine in this movie, like, in terms of she doesn't do anything, but she's okay. <laughs> um, but it's just, yeah, my disdain for her comes from Designated Survivor. I just think she's terrible. Uh, I just love reading her story about why she's Maggie Q. Because um, <laughs> she had to drop Quigley, which is her last name, because the Chinese couldn't pronounce it properly. So, there you go. And I don't mean to be mean here, but she's younger than Kerry Russell, but somehow she looks older than Kerry Russell. So... I don't know. I just That's find... racist. It, it probably is. Oh, wait, it's um, usually the other way around, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think so. Um, but, I mean, yeah, this whole sequence is entertaining. It's it's kind of just... I like the way it just jumps into it. I mean, this movie really doesn't have many, um, you know, sequences where you're bored in it. You know, it's not Mission Impossible 2, where, like, everything's slow-mo. You're like, oh, my God, when is this going to end? Like, we don't have slow-motion Spanish dancing here. You know, we're just we're shooting up a Berlin warehouse, which is great. Uh, I do, you know, you're saying about how Jonathan Reese Myers make you have nothing to do. They have their little quips about, like, hold on, all I do is all hold I on and copy. copy. <laughs> all I do is copy. Great. Um, I do really like badass Felicity where she grabs a gun and just starts mowing down people. Um, the, yeah, the that's helicopter not a great trailer shot. Yeah, the, the helicopter chase sequence, like, I agree with pretty much everything you say, but just the editing annoys me because it's so, like, flashy and quick. 
that it's, you know, it's, I mean, there's not even lens flares here, I don't feel. I feel like there's only one moment where I noticed a lens flare. But, like, it's just, I don't like the editing of this scene because to me that makes it confusing because it's just, it's so fast that, like, I don't know if they're doing that deliberately to kind of mask the, the CGI mixed with the realness. Um, but there's just an, an element, and you get that a little bit later on too in one of the action scenes as well, which kind of just takes me away from the scene a little bit because it's a great scene. But it just, it is kind of so flashy and in your face. But I was in no way expecting Kerry Russell to die. I assumed she was like a main part of this film. So when she dies, I was like, oh, okay, then she's the Emilio Estevev of this film. Fair enough. Um, the difference is she gets credited for a role in this movie. Um, but yeah, I, I kind of, the thing too I like about like, the setup, I mean, I like sort of earlier when he was doing the lip reading, how that's going to come back into it later. And then also this chip thing in his, in a head, which ultimately yeah. will come back later on. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's all fun stuff and good for the New Zealand cameo. I'm glad you pointed that out when the poor sheep get like <laughs> murdered by a blade. Uh, couple interesting Maggie Q facts here. So, <laughs> as I mentioned, she actually has uh, uh, several uh, pretty decent Hong Kong action movies that she did before Mission Impossible. Uh, the first one I actually saw, which was, I guess, kind of her breakthrough movie, uh, it's called Gen Y Cops. It's actually a movie series. But uh, in Gen Y Cops, it's so funny that in China, they said people don't know how to pronounce Quigley. Was that what her name was? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, they said they don't know how to pronounce Quigley, so we're just going to call you Maggie Q here. Uh, the very first movie, big breakthrough movie she had, Gen Y Cops in China, her character's name is Jane Quigley. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe that was just the English translation. I heard it was the version. same thing too with Jackie Chan, though. A lot of people started calling him Jackie C because, uh, you know, Americans couldn't pronounce Chan. So <laughs> it's, it's, you know, either side of the world, it kind of happens. Mm. Um, another interesting fact, and uh, I. I should just automatically know this, but you know, I always forget it. And I even tried to remind myself yesterday, and I forgot. And I'm just glad I clicked on you know these pages here, clicking on like Carrie Russell's page or whatever. Uh, just an interesting trivia fact here: uh, Michelle Monaghan and Carrie Russell share the same birthday. They're both born March 23rd, which well, they also share the birthday of me. Oh, <laughs> so. <laughs> I remember Yay, growing up, I, Colin. I was always, I was always like hoping because you know when IMDb will have like these people born on this date, and I always thought it was really lame at the time. Where I'm like, the most famous person born on my birthday is Felicity. Great. <laughs> Mission Impossible comes out, and then all of a sudden it's like, wait, two of the actors from Mission Impossible movie share my birthday. Now still pales in comparison to Jamie, who shares a birthday with both Jennifer Garner and Sean Bean. No. Which I remind her every How is day. She still alive? <laughs> She's in great company because she shares a birthday with two of the greatest human beings on the planet. Can I just put um, out Maggie Q's engaged to Dylan McDermott? I did not know that. Um, for those playing what? at home, I share a birthday with Adam Levine and Queen Latifah. So, um, <laughs> you're welcome, world. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, good job, Ben. All right. <laughs> But anyways, like, I completely agree with you about the surprise of her death, because even at the time, I didn't see it coming. And I think it's, it would probably be an even bigger surprise now, just because she is more famous. I mean, she's done so many more things, not just the Americans, but like Planet of the Apes and everything else. Uh, the way that they have the one thing I forgot to mention here, the relationship talk between Ethan and Luther is great, too, because this is where they mention it's like, I wasn't invited to your party. And you would have to understand it's not that like 
Luther's not his friend, but he has to completely remove that. And and even Billy Crudup's character had that moment about not being invited. Uh, and it's just completely understood. You know, this is your private life. You, you can't have because you can't ever let a person know what you do. Why it's weird that it's so loose later on. Uh, when <laughs> I work for the Impossible Mission Force. They should just be shooting her on the spot there. Uh, so after this, we get uh, a lot of setup with the story here. When Ethan comes home, this is the moment I mentioned where the previous scene where you're just like, oh, that's too bad. you got to go for a conference. He comes home, and he's just sort of looking at her weird. And she's like, what's wrong? He's like, oh, nothing. I'm just glad to be home. And... She has like this very brief moment where you, you you blink and you miss it, where she just starts to look suspicious, uh, which I think is one of the things that I didn't appreciate enough about her performance when you see later on when she actually confronts him at the hospital. Uh, introduction to another character here. So here we get a briefing, and this is the first time we really see IMF agents, not just in the field, because we'll, everything we've seen, even in the TV show Mission Impossible – both versions of the Mission Impossible TV show prior to this, they just it's it's exactly like you see in the first two movies. They get their missions, they never interact with anybody outside here. But here we see like Ethan, maybe it's because he works as a trainer here, but he has this office job and he has to report to people and Lawrence Fishburne's introduced. Can I also say, I mean, I love Lawrence Fishburne, but there is something about the way his character's written in this movie that's just weird. Mm. And I think it has a lot to do with the lines that they give him, which should be kind of clever and witty, but like when they're saying like that's unacceptable, it's like unacceptable is a chocolate makes you fat. And then he's like, but look at me. It's just a weird line. And I kind of like, I think they could have gone further with the, the way that he interacts with Billy Crudup's character. They get some stuff good later on, but I don't know the whole idea here is to basically do what they did with Kitridge in the first one to make the boss character that you're clearly supposed to be suspicious of. And then guess what? He's not the villain. Somebody else is. They're really just redoing Mission Impossible 1 here with the Billy Crudup and Lawrence Fishburne characters. But I don't think Lawrence Fishburne's character really ever takes off the way that it should. Um, I don't know if you have anything to add on Lawrence Fishburne here. Uh, I mean, it's Morpheus Perry White. So, I mean, you know, who doesn't love Lawrence Fishburne? But I guess, Mm -hmm. yeah, I... I, what about the chocolate though? Like, just the way it said, like, it did confuse me too, because I'm like going, is this meant to be like, is he, you know, the fun loving boss that will drop a funny little one line, or is he being yeah. deadly serious? Or like, chocolate makes you fat, but that's not fair. Like, whatever the line is, it's like, what? And even Billy Crudup, like, these are the things I think maybe they could have gone a little bit further with. When they're saying, like, this mission was a complete waste. He's like, well, actually, we got a couple of laptops. Like, they were burned to a crisp. <laughs> they, they don't think we can get anything. It's, Billy Crudup's constantly kind of interrupting him, and it's almost like he's he's giving these snarky remarks but not being snarky about it. But it's just they don't go far enough with it. But I, I completely agree with you. I mean, it's Lawrence Fishburne. I can't dislike anything Lawrence Fishburne does. It's just I don't feel like that this character that they maybe had enough time to write it or make it make sense here. And some of the lines are just unusual, unusual here, but, um, yep. Unusual, very unusual. Uh, (laughs) Losing my ability to speak here. Uh, did I ever mention that I actually had a lisp when I was a kid? Um, no, you didn't, but please tell us that enlightening story. People, people will probably notice, now that I mention it, people will notice it come out, but, uh, I had to go to speech therapy when I was a kid because I had a lisp until I was like six or seven or so. I think it was only like six, but went through speech therapy. And if, if you listen closely enough, you can still hear very subtly problems with my S's. 
Uh, which anytime I point that out to a person, that's all I can focus on. I was like, you sound ridiculous. And Jamie's always like, every time I say a word, like, mission, mission impossible. <laughs> Anisu, You know, just a random <laughs> thing I've just, just clicked on here. You mentioned about Carrie-Anne Moss nearly being in this movie. Now, mm-hmm. I'm literally thinking, what has she done since The Matrix? Because I, I looked at her, <laughs> you know, filmography. And okay, there's a few things there that I've heard of I've never seen. It then comes up with her awards that she has won, and she won, as part of The Matrix, the Empire Award for Best Newcomer in 2000, tied with the crew of East is East. Now, this award doesn't really have a very good reputation through the people who have won it. Uh, Brian Singer won it uh, in 1996. <laughs> um, Rosamund Pike won it for Die Another Day. Um, Brandon Routh won it for Superman Returns. Um, it's kind of got a bit of a bad reputation for people who've gone on to either done nothing or accused of sexual assault. So just random little things that I'm reading here while I'm also listening to you about your lisp. Did Maggie Q and Jonathan Reese Myers win the same award? No, sadly they didn't. Uh, the year that this was, Brandon Routh beat out, um, Alex Petty Fair for Stormbreaker, Dominic Cooper for Starter for Ted and the History Boys, Paul Dano for... Little Miss Sunshine, and Ryan Johnson for Brick. Eh, those are some good actors, and then the guy that made The Last Jedi. Yeah, so just everybody throw your tomatoes at that asshole. <laughs> so Carrie Ann Moss, or is this Brandon Routh's year? Uh, th- th- that was uh, Brandon Routh's year. Carrie Ann Moss beat out um, Tim Roth for The War Zone. Jewel <laughs> for Ryan with the- Sorry, Jewel. Ryan with the Devil! Famous. There you go! Uh, Haley Joel Osment for The Sixth Sense and Edward- Eduardo Sanchez and Daniel Murick for The Blair Witch Project. <laughs> I just laugh at seeing Jewel. Remember when she was a thing? Uh, <laughs> Jewel. Uh, I'm, I'm going to say right now that Brandon Routh over Ryan Johnson any day of the week. <laughs> <laughs> Brian, Ra- Br- uh, Br- Brian Routh. Brandon <laughs> Routh to direct Ru- Star Wars Routh. Episode Ten. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I watched, speaking, speaking of which, complete tangent, there was this video I watched on YouTube the other day. It was like ranking all the on-screen Supermans, you know, throughout history, you know, giving the definitive order. And, you know, rightfully so, Chris Reeves number one. They put Brandon Routh as the worst and saying that Superman Returns oh. was the worst. Like, they even put some random Turkish Superman. They made <laughs> some Turkish version of Superman in the 80s and they put him ahead of Brandon Routh. Ridiculous. I mean, we we even talked about on our Man of Steel episodes that like Brandon Routh is looked upon pretty pretty respectably now for what he did. I mean, maybe not so much at the time, but that was just two thousand. That was two thousand six. That was the year of couch jumping and uh, people- Kane was ahead of Brandon Routh. <laughs> That's just wrong. <laughs> oh, Dean Kane, we miss you. No, we don't. <laughs> He's in Anyways. Act of Purgatory with Toby Maguire and uh, Brendan Fraser. And Kevin Spacey and... <laughs> <laughs> well, for different reasons. <laughs> Directed by Ryan Johnson. Uh, so, <laughs> the, um, the, the, the Lindsay funeral we get here, there's actually a deleted scene which would have explained... Thank you for clearing your throat again. Um, <laughs> she was laughing that time. Lindsay funeral. Ah, funeral. <laughs> Die. Wait, wait. Jamie, Jamie, Jamie hates it for Lindsay because she cut her hair, just stuff. like everyone else in America. <laughs> okay. That's wow, fantastic. she laughed a little bit too hard at that. 
She found some meme that says, day 98 without sex, I slammed on my brakes so my seatbelt could choke me. I think she's giving you a message there, Colin. Uh, I don't understand As it. you two approach day 98. Yeah. Anyways, back to, after that unusual interruption there, back to the movie here. Feel um, better! Um, anyways, so the, the Lindsay funeral is very brief in the movie, but there is a deleted scene which explains a plot hole that exists with Billy Crudup's character later on, uh, where Ethan actually tells him about this Micronaut. Because we had the scene where, um, the postcard comes, but also there was that moment where she told him, like, turn off your transmitter, she wants to tell him something. Ethan tells Billy Crudup about that here. He tells him, yeah, she tried to contact me. You know, she um, had uh, told me to turn off the transmitter. And then Billy Crudup's character tells Ethan here, I should have told you about Lindsay. And then he goes, what do you mean about me and Lindsay? It's like, what do you mean? It's like, oh, we were seeing each other. It really has no relevance to this movie. So, I mean, even as a deleted scene, I don't know why they needed that in there, that, like, Musgrave was dating Lindsay. uh, Or if he was just saying that as a way to get Ethan on his side, but it's just funny that I, it never occurred to me until I watched the deleted scene that Musgrave shouldn't know about the micro dot later on in the movie when he brings it up. Like there is no way he would ever know about this. But anyway, so this, this postcard with the micro dots on there and he has Luther looking at it and he's like, there's no image on here. And he's like, well, look harder. He goes, well, there's not exactly much square footage to look at here. <laughs> and they have this weird conversation about, you know, uh, Lindsay and Ethan's talking about um you know uh uh oh don't don't you remember when you were sweet <laughs> Luther's like I don't remember that far back <laughs> and he says uh you didn't have anything going on with her did you and he goes she was like my little sister I'm just saying you never slept with your little sister <laughs> <laughs> only Ving Rames can pull that off <laughs> I don't get why is this even there though like is this to, for the audience to essentially be like oh yeah Tom Cruise and Felicity boned I mean, maybe. I don't understand it either. Um, it's it's weird, though, that in this movie, he doesn't answer that question. He Once he says, you never slept with your little sister, he just sort of looks at him. And then he changes the subject, says, it could be magnetic. He goes, yeah, good point. And then they just never bring it up again. But uh, maybe there was a subplot that's not here. Maybe that's why there was this scene about, you know, her dating Musgrave. Uh, maybe she had some weird fling thing with Ethan, and Ethan was stepping out in Julia. What a scumbag! <laughs> ben! And poor old Tanny Newton's in there in the background somewhere, crying still. Yeah, you're just wrecking my hero Ethan Hunt for me here. <laughs> but uh, we get introduced to Benji here. So Simon Pegg, another interesting story that uh, Simon Pegg, I remember also with him, it being kind of a big deal that he was cast in this movie. A lot of actors in this movie were not big names, but people were excited to see them because, like, Simon Pegg at the time that this movie comes out, the only thing he was known for was Shaun of the Dead, and that's literally the only thing he was known for. Uh, it's funny that J.J. Abrams, in offering him this role, wasn't even sure that he wanted to be a full-time actor, nor was Simon Pegg sure he wanted to be a full-time actor. And now we look at, like, you got to wonder, would, would we have Simon Pegg, who Simon Pegg is today, if J.J. Abrams hadn't said, hey, I want to put you in a small role in a Mission Impossible movie, and he's like, yeah, sure, I'll do it. <laughs> Otherwise, would he have just been the guy from Shaun of the Dead and maybe Hot Fuzz and The World's End, and that's kind of it. But 
A lot of people were excited to see Sean uh, uh, Sean Pegg, Simon Pegg at the Sean time. Dead. Sean from Sean of the Dead. That's a <laughs> but it was kind of exciting to see him in the movie because people only knew him from one thing and it had been a couple of years since Shaun of the Dead came out uh, but this is one of these characters like I said where it's clearly the alias character and we've seen this in so many of the movies since then the, the, the kind of quirky uh, slightly nerdy gadget guy techie guy the the character they had on alias was so annoying this is just like the Bradley Cooper thing they do so much of a better job here with Simon Pegg than the annoying guy they have on alias uh, but he's briefly introduced here, and he talks about what this rabbit's foot can be, which is, as he said, some uh, professor of his from university that had this theory about this this device called the anti-god, which basically life on all uh, Earth is over, um, and anytime he sees somebody who wants to pay this amount of money that Davian wants to pay, it's probably for this anti-god. And I don't know, we'll talk about it closer to the end of the movie, whether this is in or maybe let's just talk about it now, whether or not you like the idea that we never find out what this rabbit's foot is. And this is the closest thing we get to. It was just one character explaining it's something really bad that could end all life on Earth. But we don't even know if that's it completely. And even he kind of brushes it off where it's this big dramatic moment. He goes, anytime I see somebody who's willing to pay this much money, I assume it's the anti-god. And everybody's like, jaws are dropped. He goes, but that's just a theory. So moving <laughs> on. It's it's interesting that they never explain this movie. It's something that I actually like about this, but it, it does lose that Mission Impossible mystique of, you know, something really crazy where you're, you're messing with the audience a whole movie, you don't know what's going on, and then they reveal at the end. We never get this revealed. So, I, I mean, only a couple little scenes here before we get into the big stuff, but uh, I don't know, should we cover uh, after this the... Well, they basically just go and they say we're going to go to get this rabbit's foot. We're going to do our little heist at the Vatican. How are we ever going to get in the Vatican? Uh, there's a mention about it, you know, uh, compared to, uh, oh no, that's the line coming up later on about um, the, the black vault scene in the first one. But anyway, so they have to go to the Vatican. Uh, Benji's introduced here, but I guess mostly the rabbit's foot and whether you think they should have revealed this in the movie. Uh, I mean, it's, I don't know. Like, I don't know how I feel about it. Cause this is the thing I have about, Philip Seymour Hoffman in this movie and just this whole plot. It's like, if you kind of analyze it, there's, there's not a lot about this plot that you really need to be concerned about. You know, I mean, I guess last movie was chlamydia. It was like, well, don't spread chlamydia in the world, you know, like the, the wet list or whatever it was in the first film, you know, you kind of, you know what stakes are hold. And we've, we've had this flash forward at the beginning of this movie, knowing kind of what's going to lead to, but, I feel like we kind of need to know a little bit more about this. Why are they going to such lengths to get this rabbit's foot? And you just don't get anything about Philip Seymour Hoffman in this movie, that he's, a what, an arms dealer, and that he goes to the Vatican once a year, and that he doesn't like it when you dangle him out of a plane. He's going to kill your loved ones if you do that. So that's kind of all it borders down to. So I think kind of that was a disappointing fact to me about this film, because then with this rabbit's foot, you just don't know what it is. And yeah, okay... You've got, you know, Shaun of the Dead here going on about um, it basically, yeah, like, it, this is what it could be, but I don't know. That's just a theory. Uh, mm. <laughs> it's kind of like, well, really? Um, and this kind of comes out of nowhere, too, the way they explain this. So, and then, like, Ethan's just so serious. Like, what if what if he was, like, the biggest joker of the office? Like, oh, I had a college professor once, and he had a coffee cup that allegedly could, like, <laughs> blow up the you know, the queen, but I think that's just a theory. And Ethan's like, tell me where this coffee cup is. Like, he just, 
Is he it just, decaf? <laughs> so <laughs> serious about everything. And Simon Pegg just literally sitting in the office going, dude, remember that time I got Ethan Hunt to believe that there was this thing called a rabbit's foot and he went after <laughs> the world and his wife nearly died? Oh, hilarious. Um, so, yeah, I mean, there is that. But, I mean, it's this movie still is entertaining enough that you can kind of forget about what I think is really a glaring plot hole in this film. Because, like, the first two films, whether or not I like them or not, they sort of had something at stake. Whereas this, it's all over something that we don't even know what it does. For all we know, it's literally, like, as he says in this, doesn't he say, like, a, a really expensive rabbit appendage? Like, wouldn't that be hilarious at the end if they get this biohazard thing out? And it's literally a foot. This is from the rare West Indian rabbit. Wow. Um, that, you know, has only ever been seen once. It's worth millions of dollars. And he's like, dude, I risked my wife's life for a piece of rabbit. Um, I, so. I'm, not, I'm not assuming that you've seen this movie, but like, are you familiar with the movie Citizen Kane at least? Um, yeah, I, I'm, again, that's an old movie. You're right, I haven't seen it, but I know what it is. <laughs> but if you, you're familiar with like the concept of Rosebud and what yeah, Rosebud yeah. is, I mean, it reminded me a little bit of uh, Pulp Fiction with the the gold case. You don't hmm. ever know what's in it. I mean, the the interesting thing is that in the movie Citizen Kane, you find out that this rosebud that they're trying to find out what it is the whole time ends up being the most insignificant thing in the world and actually kind of works for the movie. <sighs> Here's the tricky thing with the rabbit's foot, though, and I'm going to kind of make an argument as to why it's better to not know. It's not that it, it doesn't have its issues, especially if you're going into this wanting answers, but I think there's something kind of refreshing every once in a while to not have it spelled out and to not really know. It gets a little bit annoying in the final scene when they tease it with Lawrence Fishburne. I think they could have just dropped it there. I don't think you even needed that. But A, this movie is so much going to be about Ethan trying to get back Julia. And I think if you introduce something that is so big, you're not going to care as much. Because, like, let's be honest. When you're seeing that scene at the end of Mission Impossible 2 where Nye is about to jump off the cliff, are you caring as much that Nia doesn't die? Or are you caring that they're about to spread as you said, gonorrhea <laughs> throughout Chlamydia, all of Colin. Chlamydia. Chlamydia, sorry. Gonorrhea is part sp- four. They're, they're spreading an STD <laughs> amongst all of Sydney, which will eventually make its way to Hobart, and then you're dead. Uh, <laughs> which one, honestly, has bigger stakes to it? So I think that's part of the issue they ran into with part two. And I'm not saying you don't care if Nia dies or not, but like obviously there's bigger stakes there. It's easier to except the whole mission of he really needs to rescue Julia if you're not thinking about the rabbit's foot, which is why it's great when the rabbit's foot just sort of just drops out of nowhere at the end of the movie. But the second part of that is that you've gone from a virus that could potentially wipe out most of the world. How much bigger can you get than that? You could make this whatever you want it to be, but eventually it'll just reach the point where it's either something so huge, so extreme that you can't properly sell it to an audience uh, or it's just sort of unrealistic or it just it doesn't live up to your expectations. And that's what we're one of the very few flaws, like very, very few flaws we're going to get into in the next movie is that that object that, that it's all about is not nearly as interesting. So that's what, when we get to four, maybe I'll, I'll kind of get a revisit opinion from you. Uh, but I think that's the reason why the rabbits of works is because you don't have any expectations this way. It's just something that it's, it's intriguing. It's mysterious, but not knowing about it actually helps you to care more about whether he's going to get Julia later on. And I mean, I see that. I think, you know, like you mentioned, what bigger things can you do at the end of the last one? If you had that, I mean, it was kind of, you don't always have to go for something ending the world necessarily like we've gone over that in james bond films it depends on the movie but 
you know, it's kind of like 24 had that problem for a while. It's kind of like, you know, they started off with this assassinate, assassination threat on season one, then it turned into a, a nuclear bomb. And it's like, okay, what can they do after a new? And there was like the biohazard. And, you know, they kind of, every season of 24 kind of suffered from that. Oh, what are they going to do to outdo the last season? Yeah. Uh, and then they kind of then sort of really simplified it a lot more in season five, which, you know, had a big threat, but it still kind of had it that way. So, I mean, there are ways of doing it. And I think you're right. It kind of, you know, you don't, but I guess, um, <laughs> This coming from a guy who did create Lost when it comes to answers, you know, you can't expect for them to come pretty easily in, within two hours. I and mean, it took six seasons to get most of the answers in Lost. So mm-hmm. I guess that makes sense. Um, one scene that we did forget to talk about here, which we probably briefly touch on too, is the wedding scene. So oh, Ethan yes. basically says, Yay, oh, I married. gotta leave. <laughs> it's very important. Um, it's like the scene on the top of the, the the hospital or whatever is really incredible. Not that like there's so many great lines there, but again, just the performances. Tom Cruise. I don't know if we really see him cry a lot, but like it's the way he sort of holds back from crying in this movie that's really good. And the fact that he doesn't tell her everything when she's like, "I know something's going on. What is it?" He goes, "I can tell you everything, but you're just gonna have to trust me for now." And then he's like, "Hey, let's get married." <laughs> and they just spontaneously get married in the chapel there with their cheap little uh uh vending machine wedding rings she's 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 not a very like can i just say this like i mean this, that's the excuse any man gives when he's like having an affair right like <laughs> <laughs> you just have to trust me i trust you tom cruise meanwhile he's off in the background boning katie Holmes. can we also establish um <laughs> did, did like we, we mentioned about tandy newton sort of being cast because she was friends with nicole kidman so you were like oh yeah. you know tom cruise just said to nicole kidman can we get your hot friend like was was um michelle monaghan a friend of katie holmes like laying in bed hey katie you know your hot friend michelle monaghan can we cast her in the next mission impossible no but <laughs> Jeez, funny enough when when this movie came out a lot of people were upset because they said she look Michelle Monaghan looks an awful lot like Katie Holmes, and there is a slight resemblance, but like you could definitely like see Stone. Where, I mean, you you could see where people would get that idea, but again, this movie was filming. I think before she was at least cast before he was ever dating Katie Holmes, but like people were just looking for anything they could criticize Tom Cruise about at that point. It was like he's casting women that just look like Katie Holmes now. This Wasn't is disgusting. That better than the opposite. Like, I mean. It's why is that a bad thing? Like that didn't think a good thing. Like at least he's kind of keeping it close to home. If he casts like I don't know Jada Pinkett Smith or something like that, like I mean you know then it's all of a sudden like oh Tom Cruise has a fetish for African Americans or something like that. You know I don't know. Not that's a bad thing, but it's just I feel like it's a good thing if you cast someone who looks like the girl that you're in love with. Yeah, I mean it's gonna be easier for him to explain when he goes home to Katie, right? I mean yeah. if. <laughs> If suddenly he casts uh, Vanessa Redgrave, yes, <laughs> coming mm. back is Max. Mm. He's gonna be, she's gonna, he's gonna Gage. be a little bit like uh, Tom. You got a thing here for the older ladies, um, or they could have just gone the complete opposite route and just cast Philip Seymour Hoffman exactly. as a love interest because they got the chemistry. And then everybody would have finally had confirmation about the rumors about Tom Cruise for a long time. So, uh, <laughs> I've got to hope he doesn't listen. I mean, we just got sued. We just got sued. <laughs> they're going to threaten, uh, he's going to cancel his publicity for Fallout unless we pull <laughs> reruns of this podcast. <laughs> let's be honest. We'd love that. It means people would actually pay attention to us. So please, yeah. Tom Cruise, let's just say it. You're gay. Sue me. All right. Cool. Move on. <laughs> hey, and come on. You know what? 
Philip Seymour Hoffman was coming off of playing Capote six months earlier. All right, yeah. coincidence? Not not at all. John Travolta and John Cruise were hanging out together a lot on hold this movie. On. So hold on a second. Jonathan Rhys Meyers, one of the things he was most well known for at this point, was a movie called Velvet Goldmine, where he mm. played a fictional version of Iggy Pop, who was constantly having gay sex with a fictional version of Mick Jagger or something played by Ewan McGregor. <laughs> Which, let's be honest, as soon as somebody in a movie is having gay sex, then in real life you're having gay sex. So, Tom Cruise was having all the gay sex at this point. Um, Ving Rhames and Tom Cruise having the gay sex. Billy Crudup and Tom Gay sex everywhere on the... Lawrence Fishburne. Take the red pill or the blue pill, whichever gets me hard, so we can have the gay sex. Like, that's all it was. Tom Cruise, sue us. Right now, we, we're saying it. Stop having the gay sex and sue us. Okay? There we go. Podcast made. Worldwide publicity. <laughs> Tom Cruise is gay, people. <laughs> He's not really. Sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry, Mr. Cruise. And and even if he is, there's nothing wrong with that. We're just wanting yes. to get sued. All right? Like, that's it. We are defaming one of Hollywood's greatest actors live on air right now. We are admitting to it. Lawyers come after us. Please. Yeah. I will have the gay sex with Tom Cruise and film it <laughs> to prove that this is true. All right? <laughs> so I can get sued. I want to get sued by Tom Cruise. That's it. Download the Oz Network. <laughs> <laughs> this is one of those moments where we're like, do we put this in the best of? Oh, not? it's in the best of. You know that for a fact. It's already because... in there. You're listening to the best of right now. Six months later, you know this, people. <laughs> it's, it's just so we could have a track on the best of called either Tom Cruise is gay or Suez Tom Cruise. Because, <laughs> like, let's be honest. South Park is still going strong 12 years later, okay? Yeah. So... Come on. Like, I mean, South Park was a big deal, but then this came along. I mean... You know, just think about the ramifications if all of a sudden we get the cease and desist, you know, remove that episode from Paramount Pictures. We're going straight to the media, small, upstarted podcast that's struggling to survive, faced with massive legal action. Whose side is the world going to take? Ours. Like, come on. Listen, I, I, I think you're onto something here. I don't want to start any rumors, but I did hear... That uh, Tom Cruise and Kevin Spacey oh. <laughs> once were working on a project together. Well, yeah. And it was directed by Brian Singer. And Harvey yeah, Weinstein right. was a producer. So, yeah. yeah I, I heard that's that Hollywood, too. That's people. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah. Um, it's, it's about time we speak out about this. You know, hashtag <laughs> me too. Come on. Um, <laughs> wow. Um, that went down so fast. <laughs> the wedding scene where Tom Cruise marries a woman. <laughs> Talk about. She's his beard, alright? This is all a fake. <laughs> That's all it is. He's having the gay sex with the priest. <laughs> my Tom number Cruise is, is zero four one. Watch. My address is to send all legal documents to <laughs> Um He does marry a woman here. Uh, a woman, inverted <laughs> commas. We don't want to start any other rumors here, but we did hear that Michelle Monaghan might have been Jonathan Reith Myers in drag, okay? Yeah, so it, it's just put let's a just get that it. out there. That's all it is. Um. <laughs> 
I'm sweating profusely now. <laughs> oh, I'm getting Colin a bit hot under the collar here. No, no, not the way I meant that. <laughs> Colin too has the gay sex. <laughs> Jamie. Yeah, it's one of those ambiguous names. It could be male or female. Jamie. Did I talk about what a big fan of Tom Cruise I've been since a young boy? <laughs> All those Pierce Brosnan comments make sense now. All the shirtless scene. Like, no woman is that obsessed with shirtless men, but gay men would be. So, you know. Jamie. Okay, so. <laughs> These episodes will you- only take two hours. Four hours yeah. later. Bengals off on a random gay sex. <laughs> You know, the funny thing is, I'm sitting here staring at a pop figure of shirtless, sexy Ian Malcolm from Jurassic Park just adorning my desk as I'm talking about gay sex. All it takes is somebody to walk in. Mallory walked in right now. She's she's out. She's questioning my sexuality for the last time. And Okay, that's enough, Ben. I'm out. If we know it's not the first time she's questioning. <laughs> She literally wrote in my Valentine's Day card, I love you because you're a little bit gay. So, I mean, <laughs> bound to happen eventually. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing wrong with um, the gay sex. Move on. <laughs> I want you to please throw that up on Instagram. <laughs> what? Nothing wrong with the gay sex. Move on. No, no, no. You're Valentine's <laughs> <laughs> I'll find it. I'll I'll take it. I don't even know. No, it's I don't have it. It's at home. It's in it's in Hobart home. So you have to wait like six months till I'm back there for Christmas. Uh. <coughs> <coughs> All right. So the wedding, <laughs> the very heterosexual wedding. It was 2006. This wasn't legal back then. Of course, it's straight. <coughs> Move on. <laughs> Anyway, so the scene's really good. <laughs> They're very believable as a heterosexual couple in love. <laughs> They're so in love. <laughs> <laughs> but it, seriously, the scene is good. <laughs> um, I think that that Michelle Monaghan's performance improves the more you watch this movie. Uh, because she's not big and out there, and she's definitely not annoying like Katie Holmes. <laughs> um, I I think that the wedding itself, I don't know if we needed to see the cheesy wedding. Uh, I don't know if we needed to see them having sex in a closet. Well, well. apparently the, the Sir Tom Cruise <laughs> thought so because he needed to dispel some rumors. Started Tom Cruise likes network. having sex in the closet. <laughs> it's his favorite place to have sex. Loves it. <laughs> Katie, I'm just going to go have sex in the closet. <laughs> we may very well officially get cancelled after this episode. We're aiming for a lawsuit, okay? <laughs> Not cancellation. We're the one podcast that just gets no listeners, so what's our next go-to? Get sued by someone. <laughs> this is going to backfire. We literally will get sued. We're going to end up in some prison cell because we can't afford our legal bills. Um, and then we will be having the gay sex, and then who's laughing now? Good job, Ben. <laughs> Thanks for that. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> it just reminds me of the Simpsons episode where um, Lisa thinks she's getting dumber because of the Simpsons gene. And then they bring out all these like successful men or whatever. Yeah. And it's like, uh, I play millionaires at parties. And it's like, I beg celebrities for money. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, if Jeff Varner has taught us one thing. <laughs> well, there's a, there's a quick slide down a slippery slope. What, you can out someone as transgender and go on to form a successful real estate career? Is that where you're going with this? No. Because that's what I'm looking for. I mean, you can maybe spawn it into some form of success. <laughs> Want to be a successful real estate agent? Just out someone as a transgender on national television. Keys to success and more by Jeff Varner. Uh, <laughs> we love you, Jeff Varner. I, I really do love you, Jeff Varner. I, I didn't bring you up. That was all Colin. <laughs> no, I just said the strategy so far is working. <laughs> All right, let's write a list. So Who sorry. else can we defame? Who else would sue us? Russell Crowe. Um, he's quite outspoken, isn't he? Um, like, can we just say, in, in our defense here, we're literally just playing up on things that have been out there for 20 years that are rumors. And, and just like Tom Cruise has not been out there for a long time, yeah. we're trying to <laughs> confirm this. Um, by the way, I just want to mention... Hollywood, Colin? Quick, let's write a list. <laughs> Oh, Jodie Foster came out, didn't she? Damn it. Um, <laughs> I like Jodie Foster. I wouldn't be that mean. Anyway, sorry. This isn't funny anymore. This is getting personal. Move on. The wedding is great. They had sex in the closet. There's drugs falling everywhere. <laughs> um, it was just it was just handy to have those drugs there. There was actually like 20 packets of Viagra so Tom Cruise could get it up because he's with a woman. <laughs> Oh, Lord. <laughs> that laugh since Ben dropped the G word on a Star Wars <laughs> Oh, the infamous G word. I've lived that. I've never lived that down. <laughs> Winner of Star Wars Clone Wars Season 30 constantly barraged me on Twitter with abuse uh, for using that word. Did you honestly get any feedback from the G word? Colin, that involves people listening to the show. Or I don't think we've had anybody listen since 2015, so no. People do need to go back and listen. That was a classic moment. <laughs> Just so you can find out what the G word is. It's like the rabbit No one knows. I'll tell you if yes. you stay. <laughs> um... I don't think we have anything left to talk about for the wedding scene. Let's just move have we on. Have this movie yet? Is, is Philip Seymour Hoffman hit by a car already? <laughs> well, they're off to the Vatican. Oh, goody. Speaking of gay. <laughs> the Catholic Church is not very supportive of Tom Cruise's life choices. <laughs> Which is why he decided not to become a priest. <laughs> What was harder for Tom Cruise in this movie? Dressing up as a Catholic priest or having sex with a woman? <laughs> We're so sorry. <laughs> it's been a long day. I mean, one, one of them does kind of, you know, help him out with his lifestyle that he's hiding, but, you know, allegedly, <laughs> allegedly, don't sue us, Pope. Actually, no, do sue us, Pope. 
Stop touching boys. There we go. Moving on. Oh, <laughs> Have I crossed the line? All right. This is a great scene. <laughs> we are way too lazy to edit because we'd have nothing left. <laughs> you know that you're going to bite us on the ass one day when one of us actually does something that's notable and then somebody's going to go well, back like, and when you come out of the Oh, closet? remember when Colin Hilding laughed at a joke about pedophilia and did nothing about it? <gasps> I'm just waiting for the day when Ben comes out of the closet and this becomes a scandal of an episode. <laughs> Everyone's waiting for me to come out of the closet. It's a thing, if, you know, <laughs> when it happens, it's not going to be like a shocking thing. It's not like if I am famous and there's going to be, you know, a 60 minutes, you know, exclusive interview. I, I finally decided I'm coming out. I'm gay. I'm like, oh, God, about time. Moving on. Tom Cruise next. <laughs> Anyways, moving on. <clears throat> um, The Vatican. So this is your classic Mission Impossible scene. So the, the Black Vault in the first one, the Biosite facility in the second. Uh, the fourth one, I think, does this better than any. But, like, I, I love this Vatican break-in here. We get all the typical Mission Impossible stuff. Everybody's playing characters. Just like I mentioned in the first episode, you don't know what their plan is going in. It's just we're breaking into the Vatican, and you sort of see it unfold. Um, I love that Tom Cruise puts on an accent here because this was basically the joke of his career. Like, he made a movie called Far and Away, in 1992, where he did an Irish accent, I think it was, or Scottish. I don't know the difference between those two. <laughs> um, <laughs> Racist. I think I am part Irish and Scottish, so... I'm a quarter um, Scottish. I'm offended. Uh, I'm an eighth of both, so I'm a qu- quarter combined. Not that I That's can tell the difference between them. <laughs> um, but... When they get out of the truck and they start arguing here, and Tom Cruise puts this great Italian accent, <laughs> it's hey, funny because morning, me, me, me. I mean, he got so much criticism for Far and Away for his accent, and following Mission Impossible Three, I mean, the next movie he did like well, outside of Lions for Lambs, like you mentioned, Valkyrie, which is a great movie by the way, uh, where he's playing one of the right hand men of Adolf Hitler, and <laughs> Tom Cruise, of course, produced that movie as well as starred in it. Brian Singer directed, by the way. <laughs> Let's just say that. Well, but, look, uh, see, this right, we, you think we're making this up, people. We've got evidence in front of us. So. But, um, <laughs> but, yeah, Valkyrie. Anyways, so Tom Cruise is playing a German Nazi, and he basically puts on no accent. He does an American accent. And everybody in the movie, like Kenneth Branagh, just uses his regular accent. You know, Tom Cruise just uses his regular accent. And... They said, or Brian Singer eventually said, well, we did this because we didn't want it to be distracting with everybody having accents, which, I mean, in a way you can kind of see the point of that, not that we're doing the Valkyrie episode here, but, like, if you go back and watch classic movies from, like, the 30s, 40s, 50s, nobody was doing accents. Uh, but Tom Cruise actually made an entire movie where he found a way to have nobody have accents so he didn't have to do one. So this is probably <laughs> the second and last time we'd ever see Tom Cruise with an accent. It's a fun little argument they have. Jonathan Reese Myers is fantastic in his brief moment here when everybody's honking their horns. It's like, I don't even know what he's saying in Italian. It's like, Lingerini! Parmigiano! What do you want me to do? I'm a Mario! (laughs) (laughs) Luigi! (laughs) That's such a, like, 
I hate I I wish I could have come up with something else. Like I don't know any Italian words because that's like the stereotype everybody has. Anytime you're speaking in like lasagna, spaghetti. But like do you really think that like people in Italy are doing impressions of like Canadians like maple syrup, <laughs> trees, swimming pools? That's that's my go-to is a boot a sorry. Uh, <laughs> but like that, okay, even that would make sense because you're imitating something you heard. But the fact that like we will make fun of Italians or people do like an Asian accent, and it's literally just use whatever words you can think of, like teriyaki if you're doing like an Asian <laughs> accent, or lasagna parmesan if it's Italian. Poutine. It's literally just like it's literally just like if you're speaking in English. And uh, there was a great comedian once who was you know uh, talking about like. Um, people imitating like Asian people, like, oh, wow, wow. And then it's like, do I go around? You guys want like airplanes, cars, trucks, trees, swimming pools? <laughs> uh, I just love your impersonation. Can you do your impersonation of an Asian accent again, Colin? <laughs> hey, I was literally repeating the act of the comedian Dat Fan, who people could look up online. <laughs> that was not me making an Asian accent. <laughs> now, listen to Ben does. Whole lot of no, no, um. <laughs> Anyways, we're about 40 minutes in the movie here. <laughs> so the Vatican scene's really cool. There's lots of stuff going on here. Again, I have no idea what Maggie Q and Jonathan Reese Myers are doing here other than changing their costumes. Um, Bing Rain spends a lot of time out in the car, uh, <laughs> winded. And uh, from all that gay sex that, with Tom Cruise. Sorry. Oh, come on. <laughs> 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 How are we ever going to air this episode? <laughs> if, we, if, we, if we had titles for these episodes, this would just be called Gay Sex Mission Impossible <laughs> 3. <laughs> anyway, so uh, I like the little stunt where he climbs up the wall and. He gets his line of Humpty Dumpty sat on wall, which is spy code word here. Uh, it's cool that he just takes the picture to put in front of the camera. Um, the the little fall he has off the wall is cool. I mean, everything in the sequence is fantastic. Like the, the spying around the Vatican. I mean, who knows what they're doing? They're just walking around and you know changing costumes constantly. But when Philip Seymour Hoffman comes in, I mean, this is when it gets really good because. This is what I mentioned in the last two about we would finally get to see how the masks are made. And as Ethan and Luther are having their next conversation about relationships and uh, Luther's basically saying, no, we shouldn't be getting married. You know, it's not good for people in our pos- position. And uh, uh, she's never going to survive. Like- slow motion. It sounds like, no, I'm not going to do this. I didn't know that, um, <laughs> that um, John Wu back. <laughs> but uh he's going through all these it's a terrible idea it's a terrible idea and all of a sudden luther um uh, don't get married don't get married luther we got married two days ago congratulations <laughs> was it to a but, woman or a man <laughs> but seeing the mask get made is the real treat here uh it's not just seeing it get made but it actually kind of makes sense like when you piece it all together because the second one i did mention they got a lot of criticism about the overuse of masks which really when you rewatch it they don't use it any more than any other movie i think it was just people thinking well they're going too far with it now it's just mask this mask that here they they make the philip Seymour hoffman mask and it's actually very simple you know you have 
one person walk around taking pictures of him from all angles. And then you upload that and you got a 3D printer on the spot and it sculpts the mask and then it paints it. And then, you know, once they actually grab him in the bathroom, which, you know, just comes from Maggie Q spilling a drink on his chest. Uh, and I like his line. that was like, no, that's OK. I always spill red wine on my uh, uh, white, uh, perfectly um, uh, clean white shirts or whatever. Uh, he goes in the bathroom and they just grab him there and then they have him. Uh, I wish I could get every single line that they make him say here because there would have been our quotes for this episode. Uh, but the one here, the pleasure of Busby's company is what I enjoy most. <laughs> <laughs> that whole speech, somebody's got to have that online somewhere. Um, but anyway, so they make him recite this and that's how they get it. Really, this is like a five-minute scene just showing you how all the stuff gets done. But the way J.J. Abrams pieces it together, it still feels like the movie's moving, moving and the plot's moving. And it's, it's, it's fast-paced and it's exciting still. You know, especially when they come in and they haven't uploaded his voice yet. So the security guy's standing at the door. And, of course, Jamie's like, when the guy's asking, you know, Tom Cruise has now taken over the costume. He is Philip Seymour Hoffman. Uh, you've got um, Jonathan Reese Myers holding him behind the door. And the, the guard or whatever is coming in, his bodyguard. Like, Are you okay, sir? You're okay, sir? And he's not saying anything. Jamie's like, why doesn't he just, like, nod yes or, like, a mm-hmm or something? <laughs> he easily could have done that, yeah. But it leads to the, the cool moment where he's basically, like, coughing nonstop and just trying to get there. Don't come in. Don't come in. He's waving him off. And when he eventually says, I'm fine, you actually can hear kind of this vocal distortion. It's like, I'm fine. <laughs> eventually, it sounds like Philip Seymour Hoffman. Even the guy's like, that was a little bit weird. <laughs> when Tom Cruise comes out and uh, they don't say that he should have been having this conversation with somebody else, Ben. But Tom Cruise, as Philip Seymour Hoffman, is talking to Maggie Q. And she's talking about, you know, I have dry cleaning service at my hotel. He goes, what am I going to be doing in your hotel room with you while I'm walking around with my shirt off? <laughs> doing some sit-ups, fatty. Um, I'm allowed to sack they from fat. They eventually get in the car together. And, uh, of course, it's Tom Cruise, it's Philip Seymour Hoffman. I like the part where Luther comes up from underneath the car. He's like, hey, what's up? Nothing. What's up with you? <laughs> Nothing. <laughs> Just completely meaningless conversation. Like, good chemistry between all the people here, even when they don't have much to do. Uh, the car eventually blows up after they've escaped, so they've faked Davian's death here, and they've gotten away with him. You get the you know, theme music playing as uh, they're riding away on the boat. Uh, there's a quick scene here also with Musgrave, where he's going to uh, Lawrence Fishburne's office, and He's telling him he finally found out, even though he didn't know about this operation. He's like, good work. Did you know about this? He goes, yes, I did, sir. <laughs> Total brown noser. Uh, but, I mean, the Vatican scene, I mean, this is your Mission Impossible heist. And there's so many things that I always remember from this movie more than this, even though it's such a big part of the movie. Like, I definitely remember the whole, you know, mask-making thing. But uh, as far as everything else, I mean, I'll probably remember, like, the Shanghai scene. Even though I think this is better, I probably remember, like, the Shanghai uh, scene like swinging through between the buildings better than I remember this but I mean when I watch this I'm like it's actually a really good sequence even though there's very little actually happening here yeah I mean it's I love the way that they just go out of their way to break into Vatican City and it's kind of implied that Vatican City's like sheltered off I mean I've never been there but I, I tourists go there all the time like do you have to go through a gate and show your passport and like oh no the Pope's not home today you can't see him or something like they're that they're posing as 
tourists on the inside of it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of it's kind of weird, but um like this is the thing which I think it was on the uh the everything wrong with video which actually makes a lot of sense. It's like if he goes to this thing every year, which I think it's implied. This is, you know, the one time he's seen in public. Can't they just wait for him outside the gates and like get in there? Like they go out of their way to sort of make it believe that he's blown up, which, again, no one seems to notice that they just essentially have a car bomb inside the Vatican City, like the poor Pope at this point. Um, like, why aren't his people after, like, revenge? Like, you know, they're coming up, you killed Philip Seymour Hoffman! He's great! Um, so I don't know, but I do, I do like, um, where she's got a little makeup case taking photos. Like, she just needs to stand yeah. there and go, yes, yes, can you just turn your head a little bit that way? Yes, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Um, and then <laughs> I just don't get this bathroom bit when it's meant to be all tense and exciting. Like, what? who is this guard that doesn't let his, like, guy he's looking after pee for more than, like, two minutes? Like, what if he was doing a number two? Like, he walks into the toilet. Why does a Tom Cruise just, like, as soon as he's told that somebody's coming, run into a cubicle, put down his pants, and just, like, his security guard, oh, 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 sorry, sir, I'll, I'll be out the front. Like, why, how clingy is his security guard? He can't even go to the bathroom. He's cleaning red wine out of his perfectly pressed shirt. Um, I have found the script here. Uh, the pleasure of Busby's company is what I enjoy, most enjoy. He put attack on Miss Yancey's chair when she called him a horrible boy at the end of the month. He was flinging two kittens. I thought I said fingering two kittens across the width of the room. I count on his schemes to reveal the, what the hell is this? Alpha, you're about to have a visitor. Finish! A way to escape my gloom. Uh, <laughs> Again, this kind of goes back to the last movie. All they had to get him to say was his name and not mm. just hope that he would say his name throughout everything. Um, yeah, I love the, what's up with you? Nothing. What's up with you? <laughs> Nothing. Uh, that's a fun scene, but, um, yeah, I don't really have much that. I do, I do, I mean, it is a great scene. Like, I agree with you. I think the way it's kind of set up and I do love that bit when he's up on top of the, the wall and he sort of puts that photo in front. Uh, of the camera. I think that's really, really clever. Uh, although, you know, five minutes later, there isn't actually a terrorist attack and they can't see because there's like this photo in front of the thing. Um, yeah, nobody takes that down. Yeah, ex- exactly. They're compromising like, the security of the Vatican just for this one thing. They're ISIS, if you're listening, there's a photo just sitting in front of one of the cameras in the Vatican City. Like, <laughs> off you go. Uh, oh, great. Now we're getting sued for that. Uh, <laughs> terrorist charges. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's Ted's exciting, and I will say, even though I'm not a fan of Maggie Q, she does look pretty darn good in that dress. Um, I thought you were going to talk about the car before. <laughs> oh, well, the car's pretty hot too, but, you know. <laughs> the next sequence, this was pretty much half of the teaser trailer, and it's probably my favorite scene in the entire movie. Uh, when Davian wakes up on the airplane, and this is the interrogation and Ethan's just asking him, you know, what is the rabbit foot? And what's great about Philip Seymour Hoffman's performance, and I think the subtlety with his performance where he doesn't go so big, like he's not doing Heath Ledger as the Joker here. Uh, he's not doing, you know, uh, Doug Ray Scott as Ambrose. And, Joker. Yeah, Joker, Jesse Eisenberg as Joker? Well, you'll get the joke. I mean, Lex Luthor, you mean? Because he's basically the Joker. Never mind. Is he? <laughs> I 
don't get I think the he joke. is. I love how Ben tells a joke. And it's gay like, sex, what? gay sex, gay sex. <laughs> You'll get the joke. I'm like, no, I won't. <laughs> Jesse anyway, Eisenberg so- had gay sex with Lex Luthor and it <laughs> b- bore the Joker. So, he's not Jesse Eisenberg as a Joker, people. <laughs> he's just... you. I, what was, I can't remember the word you used to describe him earlier. He's just... He's, He's just okay. cool. He's uh, he, he's oh, level-headed. He's <laughs> you, what, what was the word? I said gay, but no, you're talking about a different. No. <laughs> <laughs> not, it's just Tom Cruise. Don't get sued by the the the, the estate of Philip Seymour Hoffman. <laughs> <laughs> no, I would never. I would never offend Philip. No, we like Philip. I like Tom Cruise. No. I'm not... <laughs> Philip yeah, Seymour Hoffman can't Tom sue Cruise. me. Tom Cruise can. <laughs> Bing Rams is going to sue us. <laughs> Anyways, um, yeah, this the way he plays it here. He's just there's something so sinister about the fact that he doesn't flinch. Like you think he, he at that moment would be like, "What am I doing here? Why do you have me tied up?" Like even even if he was like this massive villain, he'd have some level of panic. I mean, this is the type of guy where he's surrounded by bodyguards twenty four seven. So just the fact he doesn't have the guards surrounding him, I mean, he would be feeling uneasy. And as he's asking, "What's the rabbit's foot?" He's like, "Who are you?" Like he doesn't even hesitate. It's it's the fact that he never hesitates throughout the scene, and Tom Cruise keeps trying to interrogate him, and all he keeps saying is, "What's your name? Do you have a wife? Do you have a girlfriend?" And that was the Are big one from the trailer. Yeah. <laughs> Do you have a wife, girlfriend, <laughs> husband, boyfriend? <laughs> At some point, we need to stop this. <laughs> but um. That was like the big trailer thing I remember is that the movie starts and he's holding him hostage and he goes, uh, you know, do you have a wife, a girlfriend? Then he gives that line where he goes, whoever they are, I'm going to find them and I'm going to kill them you know, or I'm going to kill you right in front of them. And then he just sort of loses it. He kicks his seat back. And that was like the opening of the, the trailer, which was like so incredible. I watched that trailer so many times, but the scene's just amazing. And I love the little things that happen here, like where he he realized, like, this is an expert at messing with people because he goes to the whole thing is like, oh, is this about your little friend? Like, he's talking about Lindsay, and he goes, oh, that was nothing. That was just fun. And that's the moment that Tom Cruise loses it. Hey, maybe he had something going on with his little sister, just saying. Um, <laughs> he, he's not gay. Sorry. He just... <laughs> Incest, just, it's hilarious. He just sleeps with his little sister. Uh, but, well, at least it wasn't his little brother. Oh, or was it? No. <laughs> Anyways, but um, I mean, the scenes just—it's just the word I would use to describe is just electric. And this is one of the things I think this movie never got enough credit for was Philip Seymour Hoffman as the villain. And I don't think I gave it enough credit originally. It's just it's another one of these things that just grows on you the more you watch it. And when he's dangling, he definitely has that look of panic where he's hanging him out of you know the, uh, the, the, the bottom of this airplane. And he's just asking, him, what is the rabbit's foot? Uh, where is the rabbit's foot? Is it a real rabbit's foot? <laughs> is this a bunny Who appendage of some kind? Is the rabbit's foot involved with anyone? Does it have a girlfriend, a boyfriend? <laughs> does it have a wife? Does rabbit does rabbit have a wife, girlfriend? <laughs> <laughs> is it better than what I sniff? 
But um, in the scene here, Luther, again, it's it's really Luther and Rick that spoil this entire movie because they would have Davian and they, they would be safe if Luther didn't continue, Ethan, Ethan here. Because as soon as he finally pulls him up, he goes, he, he uses the name, he goes, Ethan, and then you realize, uh-oh, he knows who I am now, or at least knows the name Ethan. This, uh, we'll talk about the next scene too. I mean, it's probably the big action sequence of the movie here, the, the bridge attack. So after they finally land... They're transporting Davy in the truck. Um, they finally find the microdot video, so Luther uh, decrypts it, and it's Lindsay basically saying, you know, somebody's working with Davian. It's Brazel, so that's Lawrence Fishburne's character. So now the suspicion's all on him. Then there's the explosion. Uh, one of the cars or trucks explodes. The whole bridge basically blows up here. There's a gap in the bridge. And I think just the visual of this is fantastic. And I think... You can do an action sequence like this anywhere, but it's the fact that they do this on a bridge that's basically completely deserted. That just it, it gives the, the setting is what really makes this so memorable. And I mean, there's lots of really great action pieces here. Uh, the the part where there's the the missile from the drone, I think it is that that blows up a car and it literally throws Tom Tom Cruise like jumps and it throws him sideways into the side of a car door. That's such a good shot. Uh, the one where he jumps across the gap in the bridge is great. You know, he shoots down a drone, which is a little bit unbelievable here. Uh, but as all this attack is going on, uh, Owen is basically getting cryo frozen out of a truck. Uh, they blast the side of this uh, truck with uh, some type of, um, what would you call that? Liquid nitrogen. Um, and yeah, they- semen. Duh. <laughs> Stop it! (laughs) (laughs) They escape with him. And I think this is one of the reasons why I think the performance of Philip Seymour Hoffman gets better over time is that he realizes, like, it's not like he ever had to tell his people, oh, this guy named Ethan grabbed me. That's what's going to come up later on with Julia, what happened so quick. But the reason Owen doesn't panic at all when they're on the airplane is because of this. He knows it doesn't matter how good their plan is. They're going to have me within 20 minutes of me landing and even the arrogance he has in the scene without actually looking cocky or arrogant like the facial expression of philip seymour hoffman so rarely changes in this movie and that's what makes it so effective is that it's just in the way he plays it without actually doing anything that's so fascinating uh but they eventually get away with him here luther's pretty winded because he has to run uh about 10 feet (laughs) and um also, I just want to comment that the very best piece of music of this entire movie is uh, the the track that plays right here, which I think is just called Bridge Attack on the soundtrack. And I can't even tell you how many hours I spent listening to this soundtrack. I mean, summer of 2006, I basically listened to nothing but the Superman Returns soundtrack and the Mission Impossible 3 soundtrack. I lived and breathed those two soundtracks. Uh, there's tons of Tom Cruise running here. As um, Finally. Yeah. Well, there's going to be tons of running after this. Uh, what was it? I'm running, running, <laughs> really fast. Tom Cruise running. <laughs> uh, let's just group the next scene here. I mean, there's there are huge sequences here, um, but not a lot of like story to talk about here. Just great action. Uh, Rick comes back for a second scene here. 
where Ethan's trying to call because he suddenly realizes, like, oh, what are they doing? Oh, is Julia going to be okay? And he's calling, uh, where's Julia? And Rick's like, oh, it's okay. I talked to your friend. He goes, uh, I'm not mad, Rick. Rick's like, I hope you're not mad at me. I'm not mad, Rick. It's just this back and forth conversation. Um, Rick's like such a boob. <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't have to do any of this movie. He's just, you just can tell by looking at the guy, he's a complete boob, but he's he great. addicted to meth already, Jesse. <laughs> I, I kind of think Rick already is, to be honest. Yeah. <laughs> he's on something. Uh, was, you could try Julie at the hospital, so he's trying to call her. Uh, I love that she they're basically cutting back and forth when Ethan speeding through traffic, trying to get a hold of her, calling everybody in this hospital. Which, she's a nurse, okay? Like Nurses are going to be assigned to one floor or one section of a hospital, but like he's calling everybody. Every single area in this hospital, and they all know who not only she is, but who he is. <laughs> so is she just like the roaming nurse who just goes everywhere. Um, she's today very she's popular. in ICU. Yeah, tomorrow she's in pediatrics. Next day she's in the ER. Next day she's in the OR. It's just on and on. But I just love that we're cutting back and forth. The fact that um, he has the phone number for the shower phone. <laughs> <laughs> Why they have a phone in the shower, I also don't understand at the hospital. Uh, but uh, when she gets out of the shower, there's this really creepy guy, which I don't know if I've ever seen this guy in anything else. Um, um, sh- trying to see if I could find him here on IMDb. Michael Berry Jr. So this oh. is the guy with the British accent that they're talking about, uh, or that Rick was talking about. So he was in Pirates of the Caribbean. He was in Star Trek as Romulan tactical officer. Uh he was in an episode of Alias. Oh, he was in The Two, which is actually one of the best episodes uh, ever of Alias. So I don't remember who he played in that. But yeah, I mean, like, th- this guy, he just looks really creepy. He's really done nothing. I mean, The Hangover Part 2. But I don't know. I, th- I just think he's he's a great um, minor henchman that you get in this movie. And when he's sort of asking her for directions, just again, something really sinister about her innocence and how she doesn't know any of this is going on. Cause she doesn't even panic when this guy suddenly attaches something to her. Like, I don't know if this is you know, just a patch that he puts on her or if it's actually something that pierced her skin, but she just was like, what's that? And she's like smiling. And then she's like, gets woozy and passes out. So if you really watch this movie, kind of knowing where this is going to go and realize that the next time you see Julia, She's basically being not tortured. She's being held hostage and, you know, uh, going to be on the phone with her husband. And she asks those questions later on where she's like, what are we doing in China? Like, she knows nothing was going on. And I think that's why her character actually works much better in this than I originally gave it credit for, like, when I first saw it. Um, but they grab her. And uh, once Ethan gets there, all the IMF people grab him. He tries to do what, Ben, to get away? Have gay sex? <laughs> oh he runs oh shit sorry <laughs> he starts flirting he starts flirting with the IMF yeah. hey guys wanna come back to my room he pulls up back it's like maybe there's some other arrangement we can work out that does not involve lawyers look at me I drop the soap <laughs> get better feel better Ben that too. Anyways, we'll uh, leave it there, the whole Davian escape and Julia kidnapping. Um, 
Yeah, I, what was I just looking at then? I was going to mention something. Um, oh, you, you mentioned that in summer of 2006, you were listening to this soundtrack. I was listening to uh, Promiscuous by Nelly Furtado featuring Timberland, the number Canadian. one song. Yes, I like Nelly Furtado. And another Canadian number one that year, Bad Day by Daniel Powter, who has gone Is on to Canadian? big, huge things. City uh, <laughs> had a bad day in 2006. Um, you know, you the, know hold the, on, when... You know what Tom Cruise's response was to the song Bad Day? Um, he had gay sex with Daniel Powder? No. no. Well, then feel better! <laughs> oh, right. You can't ask me these questions out when my mind's in a certain place this episode. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, the, the, the plane, like, the thing that I really appreciate, though, about, yeah, Philip Seymour Hoffman's character here, too, is that it's kind of, they're really backed into a corner with this guy, aren't they? Because, like, they're literally dangling him out of a plane. And he's not talking, so yeah. it's kind of like, what are they going to do to get him to talk? Uh, so I, I kind of like that that sort of sets that up for that there. Um, this whole bridge sequence, is this what you were talking about last episode, where they kind of shoot all these bazookas at a bridge, a rickety old bridge, and it doesn't blow yeah. up, but this one kind of yes. blows up? Um, the thing, I thought this was Florida, because like that's kind of like those uh, long sort of bridge sections in Florida, but this is actually a real section in Virginia. Um, you know, iconic, you know, settings of Mission Impossible films, Virginia. Um, Virginia? but I, you mentioned, you mentioned, um, the what now? Who? What? Where? <laughs> it's just your pronunciation, Virginia. Oh, well, it's better than unusual. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were say it's better than when you sniff. <laughs> uh, it's called, um, the Cheese. Chesapeake Bay Bridge Tunnel. That's what this place. That whatever <laughs> you pronounce words better than I do. I don't. All right, I'm dumb. Wait, the, wait, how did you say that again? Ch- Chesapeake. The Cheesecake Bay Bridge Tunnel. It looks like cheesecake or cheesecake. <laughs> Chesapeake. 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 What now? Chesapeake. The Chesapeake Bridge. <laughs> the Chlamydia Bridge. All right, it's got chlamydia. It's. It gets attached. You mentioned Tom. Uh, you mentioned Tom Cruise. Really, Tom Cruise. You mentioned him before. Um, you mentioned Top Gun before. Like when he's looking up into the sky, and he sees that plane. I want him to be like Goose, uh, flying <laughs> like, towards him. Highway to the danger zone. Um, but I mean, it's, it's a pretty cool. That love and feel. Uh, what's that other one? The the love one when he's take has gay sex with Anthony Edwards. Yeah, that one. Take my breath away. That's it. Take my breaths away. Um, I I interviewed the the Berlin sings that. Yeah, I, I they came to Hobart, Berlin, like three four years ago. When I was at the newspaper, it was a big deal. Ooh, we've got the one hit wonder from Top Gun coming to Hobart. Woo! Um, no, Berlin, Berlin is known for two things. Take my breath away and sheep, apparently. Yes. Nothing else in the history of Berlin is notable, uh, except for take my breath away. It ended there, people. Nothing else happened. Nothing. Um, you know, actually, I'm really looking forward to watching Valkyrie now that you mentioned sort of about the lack of accent. So I'm really looking forward to Adolf Hitler being like, I really hate the Jewish people. Let's gas them. <laughs> Um, I guess I'm sure that American Hitler, um, aka He's like, Donald Trump. Parmesan lasagna, rigatoni! <laughs> German, you just say it very angrily, like, Parmesan! 
Mario! <laughs> I don't know what that accent was. Um, but why, why, when they break him out of this van, do they use this, like, semen stuff? Like, can't they just open the door? Like, why do they have to go out of their way? Like, wouldn't it be easier to just lockpick the back door? Uh, Probably. <laughs> what, what happens if, like, Philip Seymour Hoffman's laying against this? And they, like, <laughs> they remove it. This half of burnt Philip Seymour Hoffman. It's like, ow! <laughs> guys! That really hurt. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, finally, Tom Cruise running. Jesus Christ, how far are we into this movie? It's all I paid this movie to see, right? Um, that and Jesse Pinkman uh, essentially sending creepy British guys to the hospital. Uh, the thing that it's interesting you mentioned about how, like, Julia kind of, you know, is a bit blasé about it. Like, it's so weird at the end of this movie how she's just... Think about this right now. If Jamie right now, you found out she was a spy. Like, I'm sure you're probably going to think it's cool. But, like, there's going to be a large questioning period there. You're not just going to be like, oh, okay, cool, let's go on a honeymoon. That's essentially what she does. Uh, I mean, you know, uh, true lies. Like, Jamie Lee Curtis's reaction, like, that's brilliant, kind of how they play that out and kind of her reaction Mm. to everything. Um, So, yeah, I mean, I think kind of they could have done it differently, but... um, you know, that that dot thing that they put on her and she just, like, passes out. What is that dot? I want one of them. Uh, for no reason Rufy. whatsoever. But, like, <laughs> that sounds creepy. <laughs> it's <on>. a roofie. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want a roofie, people. For people listening to this, thinking that I want a roofie. I don't. All right? I have someone who I don't need to roofie. She willingly gets into bed with me. So she thinks you're gay, Ben! I show her that I am, all right, by <laughs> sleeping in separate beds. That whole getting into the same bed thing was a joke. It's a cover. She's my beard. <laughs> uh, there was one thing I missed in the last scene, which we'll appreciate because of Mission Impossible 2. The uh, magical Tom Cruise watch that instantly knows when to count yes. down for 48 hours. <laughs> so you have 48 hours till uh, we kill Julia. He presses one button, 48-hour countdown. Well, well he, he says that line. He says, like, do you have a watch? You've got 48 hours. I feel like he should say, do you still have that watch from the last mission that you did? Remember that one that could count down 20 hours? Well, now you've got to increase it to 48. Yeah, yeah. What if that? Had, what if? What if he's like, do you have a watch? Yes. It's like, does it count down? Yes. All right, 48 hours. Oh, this one only goes to 20. Oh, all right. Well, go and get another watch. I'll wait on the phone. Feel better. <laughs> Do you have a phone that counts down? It's like, it's before iPhones. We'll, we'll just just remember the time right now. It's 2 p.m. on Tuesday. <laughs> remember by 2 p.m. on Thursday, Julia will die. You know, it, it's, it's about 7 a.m. Thursday morning in Shanghai, so subtract... I mean, not Shanghai, I'm not there. I'm not in Shanghai, shh. <laughs> well, we should also mention the briefcase that uh, Davian tells him what it is here. It was that brief ca- briefcase that I had that you grabbed me within uh, uh, the, the Vatican. That's the location of the rabbit's foot. Don't they get that briefcase when they leave with him? Why does I'm glad you pointed that out because I didn't. I was going to ask a question at some point, like, "What is what is the deal with that briefcase from the Vatican?" Because like, we don't. He says it here. He says that briefcase that I had that contains the location of the rabbit's foot, and then he's like, "It's in Shanghai. See you there." But like, (laughs) Ethan Hunt doesn't have it on him here, so Brazil Musgrave they they know the location. Why aren't they looking for him in Shanghai? This is where they need to have, like, a, an overdub, like the Amazing Rest. Teams must now travel to Shanghai. Shanghai, <laughs> one of the largest cities in China, features this tall, pointy thing. <laughs> uh, 
but I mean, plot hole aside, I think it, it's it's pretty cool that he just instantly gets this countdown, and then he gets thrown into not prison, but strapped to a table with a muzzle on. He He's in Hannibal Lecter. He is, yeah. That's what I was going to say. Hello, <laughs> but um, uh, this is where we get the repeat of the um, the lip reading thing. So you know. Lawrence Fishburne is basically saying, you know, we're on to you, Ethan, and uh, you're going to go away for life. And then he leaves the room and Billy Crudup goes in as, I'm so disappointed in you, Ethan. It's basically like the dad speech here. Um, <laughs> oh, there's an, here's another one of the weird lines that Lawrence Fishburne has here. He, he says something about uh, sleeping. He goes, and I love my sleep. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And there's, there's, there's a thing that like we need to spin off here of Lawrence Fishburne's character where he gets home at night and he's like, mmm, chocolate, but it makes me <laughs> fat. Oh, well, I better get some sleep because I love my sleep. Love my sleep. And I will bleed on the flag to make sure those stripes stay red. <laughs> <laughs> like, what does that even mean? Like, it's kind of... Yeah. Okay. It's... Well, they're already red. Are they? Are they fading? Are they in the sun? Like, <laughs> because he might be a you know a rogue agent. Does that mean he's gonna you know put out there that the flag should change the color to green? Like what? <laughs> it's is that what Canadians they're... say? Because your flag is just red and white. Like I'm gonna bleed on the maple leaf to make sure that it's still red. No, we don't. Uh, but <laughs> we're thinking Canadians about changing our national bleed. anthem to. To Bad Day by Daniel Powder. So that's going to replace <laughs> no, Canada. That just sums up Canada. <laughs> oh, we've had yeah. a bad day, eh? Had a bad day, eh? <laughs> no, I think you should change it to Promiscuous. That also sums up Canadians. <laughs> promiscuous Wait. boy, wherever you are. Aren't you with a Canadian? What are you saying? <laughs> well, I'm clearly saying I'm having a Promiscuous day. You're also with a Canadian. You're having a bloody bad day. So who's got the better <laughs> partner here from Canada? She's the one memes about people choking themselves with seatbelts because they haven't had so sex in 48 years. She wants to be promiscuous, but you're going 98 <laughs> days without pleasuring your wife. There's a problem there. You're having a bad day. <laughs> go. Another great Canadian national anthem, Colin. Your heart will go on if you actually do something with your wife. Don't you remember in the summer of 69 when everything was great? Oh, if Ben, this is how you do. You'll do it for Jamie. This is how you remind me of who I really am, okay? Oh, don't be such a skater boy, Colin. <laughs> hey, don't um... Don't be such a uh, baby. Um, uh, nautical disaster by the tragically hip. <laughs> Anything by Neil Young. <laughs> the needle and the damage done. <laughs> Superman is dead. <laughs> Shania Twain! Man, I feel like a woman! <laughs> that don't impress me much! <laughs> what William <are> Shatner! <laughs> what was that one? William Shatner! <laughs> don't you understand my joke? <laughs> And now we just start mentioning celebrities' names again. Alan Thick, <laughs> Amy Jo Johnson. <laughs> Jim Carrey. Justin Trudeau. <laughs> Justin Trudeau's father. <laughs> the 
queen. Oh, wait. She just runs Canada. Never mind. <laughs> um, <laughs> all right. So Ethan's escape here is pretty cool, too. Uh, so Musgrave, Billy Crudup, he is telling him, uh, I'm so disappointed in you, Ethan. You let me down. And then he just starts mouthing words to Ethan. I know you can read my lips. <laughs> I'll meet you in the closet at 7 o'clock. <laughs> The pleasure of Busby's company is what I most enjoy. <laughs> I'll bring the wine, you bring the lube. Man, I feel like a woman. <laughs> <laughs> that does impress me much. <laughs> That'd be so funny if somebody should just like dub that over with a Nickelback song. You know, how the hell we wind up like this? <laughs> Look at this photograph! (laughs) (laughs) Um, (laughs) Anyways, it's cool they bring the the lip reading back. He hands him something that he can use to pick a lock. Uh, We get Ethan's escape. Uh, Some great spy stuff here. There's so much that J.J. Abrams does that you wouldn't think of that... I mean, even movies like Bourne aren't necessarily doing at this point. And I don't think the James Bond movies have ever done. Like, when he's escaping here and then Brazel's on the radio saying, Ethan Hunt is on the loose. And then Ethan Hunt immediately says, this is Brazel. <laughs> he does his best Lawrence Fishburne impression. <laughs> he's a brilliant Lawrence. Uh, that's one thing. People actually don't know that about Tom Cruise, you know, the whole gay thing. But also the fact that he actually... <laughs> Is a you know a magnificent Lawrence Fishburne impersonator. He, he wins yes. competitions all the time. And actually, there were some scenes in the Matrix that Lawrence Fishburne was unavailable. So that was Tom Cruise playing Lawrence Fishburne. So just you know uncanny. why, right? Don't give because me your typical they look No, similar. I think you're using about gay sex. Um, no. Oh, Colin, <laughs> he doesn't have to do an accent. It's so oh. obvious. <laughs> I mean, again, the resemblance, the resemblance is striking. Actually, one thing, speaking of resemblance, I just want to really backtrack. The one thing that we didn't mention is that when Tom Cruise is in the Philip Seymour Hoffman mask, like, slight issue, Philip Seymour Hoffman is A, tall, and B, fat. So, like, Tom Cruise doesn't wear a fat suit, and he's short. So how does that work? Uh, well, I think he does put on some padding, but I don't know. What are their height differences? I mean, Tom Cruise right. is renowned as being short, isn't he? Well, Philip Seymour Hoffman is 5'9". I think Tom Cruise is like 5'5", five, 5'6". Five, five, so, I mean, he's so not... Like he's one, tall. Two. He's like two or three inches taller, I guess. Yeah, but <laughs> he had lifts in his shoes. Well. Um, but it's it's not just the fact that he does the Lawrence Fishburne impression. It's it's when he's doing this, it's like, uh, we, we have him on uh, floor number three and uh, all agents to the east exit. He's basically telling everybody to go away and then... He, the way he prevents Brazel from actually coming back and saying, that's an impersonation. This is the real Brazel. And Tom Cruise is like, no, it's not. I'm the real Brazel. <laughs> but he just, he holds down the button on the walkie-talkie so that the transmission's still open and nobody else can communicate, which is actually, you think about that, and you're like, that's actually really brilliant. And then when he puts it on, this is where the we are the family thing comes up, which is, it's, it's cheesy, <laughs> but it's so funny. Uh, the thing I like the best here is another one of these cool little alias-type references. Uh, when he escapes and he comes up, did you see where he comes up? Like, the, the building he escapes from? Um, the gay nightclub of Virginia? 
I'm going to stop asking you questions. <laughs> uh, I, I, no, I don't know. I wasn't paying attention. I'm the sorry. Of, the Department of Transportation. Oh, okay. So there you go. That's the cool. IMF facilities are basically a couple of floors down in the Department of Transportation's building, which this is what Alias did, like the, the first two seasons. Um, you know, the, the agency, or I guess one of the agencies that Jennifer Garner's character is working for, uh, it operates in the basement of a not a basement but like lower levels there's a secret entrance through a bank and her cover to all of her friends on the outside was i work for a bank and then she'd go to work every single day walk into the bank walk into a room and there was like a secret elevator that took you downstairs and they do the exact same thing here with the department of transportation so you realize it's it's a subtle thing but it's like his cover is still real they go to these great lengths for this um uh after this i love when he gets on the airplane here again just very small moment but he's in his disguise here is this crazy whacked out uh ukrainian hippie or whatever he is check he's check sorry racist all right i don't know the (laughs) difference between irish and scottish i don't know the difference between czech and ukrainian uh but pavel sabotka um when the ladies question you think it's just like a fun scene to show how he gets away but there's a lot to even this about, you know, what a spy would really be. Because it's all just about um, misdirection, I guess. And if you present yourself as just being the most uninteresting person, then people are less likely to ask you questions. And right here, he just starts trying to speak to her. And what is the language of Czech? Is it, is it Czech? Czech, okay. So he's speaking <laughs> to her in uh, uh, Czech. What is the language of England? <laughs> Speaking in check check and lease and uh <laughs> check and lease. <laughs> and he's like blah, 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 and she's like, I'm sorry, I don't speak that. And, I don't know, that sounds like a turkey gobbling there. I want I want there to be a segment, Colin does accents. See, I'm no better than Tom Cruise. I'm like lasagna parmesan. But anyways, he starts speaking in his Czechanese and the lady's like, I'm sorry, I don't speak that. And he's just like, okay. Okay. <laughs> we have a sad little montage of poor old Czechanese Tom Cruise. I'm so used to not people not knowing what I say. Pavel Sobotka. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Um, but then he goes to Shanghai and I think this was maybe one of the things that it's not that there's a letdown for me in the movie, but that I guess this big sequence, obviously they're not going to film the entire thing. Like this is sort of that combination of real stunts with CGI. You know, he's doing it on a studio. He really is doing these stunts, but that there it's just the backdrop of Shanghai, but they did go there. And that was sort of the big deal is that it was said that this movie was going to be filming primarily in Shanghai. And I guess a large chunk of this movie is, it's just, I don't know if we get a lot of it outside of a few little sequences here, but uh, when he shows up at the apartment here, and um, there's a knock at the door, and it's, oh, it's the rest of his team. It's Luther and the other two. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> and uh, he's going through his plan, like, we got to do this. One thing that I really liked with um, his whole plan here is that he's still a spy because, yes, it's about rescuing his wife. But what he keeps talking about is the rabbit's foot. And even when he's talking about rescuing her, he's like, listen, we got to get the rabbit's foot. We got to tag the rabbit's foot. We have to uh, then get Davian so that the rabbit's foot doesn't get out. 
And then in doing this, we'll get Julia back. Like, it's not like he's like, we got to get my wife. And then maybe we'll do something with the rabbit's foot. Like, the rabbit's foot is still his main objective, which, again, is a, it's, it doesn't matter if it's his wife. That's his, still his main goal. That's what it's all about for him. Uh, they talk about, you know, the security here, like the uh, ex-Chinese uh, Republic military is the security in this building where they have to steal the rabbit's foot from. There's a line here where Luther says, uh, you know, compared what you're talking about compared to this Langley was a cakewalk, which is our only really the only reference to the first two movies we get here. Uh, We'll get a lot more in the next couple movies. But here they kind of each exist in their own universe. Uh, And there's the reference to like the Black Vault scene, which always kind of bothered me because I feel like this mission that they have here, he's talking about. Yeah, the stunt is crazy. What he's saying, swinging between the buildings. I like how he draws it, the outline on the window actually tracing out the real buildings that are in front of them but really it doesn't seem like it's that big of a deal what they do here uh but there's that back forth conversation about you know ethan this is insane he goes listen walk away if you have to but i gotta do this and then he's like well of course we're with you it's a a great (laughs) luther moment here uh they have only two hours to get this though and he says something about, you know, we can get all this equipment here. But then he's like, we have two hours. And then I think it's a little later on. He goes, oh, we have an hour and 12 minutes left. So it's like, it's been 48 minutes from when they're having this conversation to when they're standing on top of the building. Did they ship it? Like, is this some <laughs> super UPS service or something? Because he actually says the line, you know, we can get that equipment here. And then they have to go to the buildings. They have to set everything up. They got a formula plan, and it's like forty-eight minutes later, later based on my count. But I like the uh, the stunt that they do here. It's unfortunate that it's at nighttime, and obviously they weren't going to film this completely for real. But uh, the swing is real. Like Tom Cruise really did fall and have to have that big jolt as he dives off the building. It's just the backgrounds you're seeing aren't real. The swing he's doing is insane. When he's sliding down the building, I think that's one of the best shots in the entire movie and probably one of the best stunts too because he's just going down this uh, diagonal glass window wall or whatever you would call it and shooting the guys side by side. And There's a great featurette on the, the DVD where they show how they did that stunt and it's pretty spectacular. But then after that, they just cut Ethan off. And... I, I think maybe you can give your opinion here too, whether you like the, not only do we not know what the rabbit's foot is, but we don't actually see him steal the rabbit's foot. I'll kind of make the same argument that I think at this point, obviously the main focus of the audience should be getting Julia back or even just getting Davy and how he gets rabbit's foot's irrelevant. And I, my argument for that is because of part two, I actually really liked the whole chimera and Bellerophon virus and cure idea i actually i won't say i kind of liked it i really liked that about the second one uh and even though i like the scene with him going to the biosite uh building you know that dive he does through the the vent uh the gunfight that we have there it's all good but i don't know if we needed to see him i think we talked about this in the last episode we didn't need to see him get the virus it, it just it feels like in a movie like this you don't care about how they get it and maybe seeing him not in the building kind of works here because it keeps the the mystery about this rabbit's foot going throughout the movie as well because you see him get in the building and then that's just sort of it the next time you pick him you have that weird scene where jonathan reese myers and maggie q are talking and you know she's mumbling something because what are you doing it's like it's a prayer for when my whenever my cat would run away i would say this prayer would come back and he's like 
say it with me. And then the scene just ends like, I'm diving into the building, I'm diving into the building. Like, what is that in there for? And that's the closest <laughs> we get to character development with these two. And again, I don't dislike them in this movie. The few moments that they each have are pretty decent, but they're so useless here. Because again, I could not tell you what either of them do other than that there's another weird line coming up. You know, after Ethan dies of his building, and again, the parachuting looks great. They talked about how for him to do a base jump, he's like at the minimum possible height. Uh, the shot where he's hanging from the streetlights and that truck's coming right at him. It looks incredible when uh, the rabbit's foot's sliding across the road and he grabs us and then the truck's like sliding towards him. It all looks incredible. The Once he gets into the, the car and they're doing the getaway, there's a weird thing with Maggie Q where she's shooting out of there, uh, out of the back of the car. And um, uh, what's the line here? Um... I'll have to look it up. You know. Take it to the zoo, Jamie says. This is a Rocky reference for anybody who's seen Rocky. Take it to the zoo. Thanks for so, that, Jamie. Appreciate thank you, it. Jamie. She's not clearing her throat. That's <laughs> progress. Um, <laughs> She's been waiting forever to drop a Rocky line. Take it to the zoo. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but I love the shot where he's hanging out of the door. Uh, like You know the one I'm talking about where, where yeah. he's trying to shoot them and he's... I don't even know how to describe it. He's literally like hanging out of the door in a speeding vehicle and... Uh, it's just a cool shot. It doesn't even need to be a stunt. It's just a great shot. They eventually get away and they can't get... I love that this. the entire tension of this is, A, are we going to die? But also, we don't have cell reception. Like, this is Shanghai. Do they really have that poor They get reception in freaking Outback Australia, but downtown Shanghai? No. Yes. And and the entire purpose of Jonathan Rhys-Meyers in this scene is, tell me when I get a good signal. And he's driving. We'll, we'll constantly check in the phone. No, no, two bars. Oh, it's back down to one. Oh, we got three. No, it's back down to two. Uh, it's a little bit cheap, but it's kind of fun. Um, how much more do we want to talk about here? Uh, quickly, <laughs> this. You're doing well. Catching <laughs> up after all the gay sex stuff. So we're yeah, getting exactly. good. Um, they finally get away after they call with like two seconds left or five seconds left or whatever. They finally get through to Davy and I have the rabbit's foot. And he goes, this is the place we're going to meet. And um, there's a moment with Brazel here. So Brazel has been the one that we're meant to believe is the traitor. Um, but Musgrave, Billy Crudup, is the one we're led to believe that's we're going to find out its roles reversed in a minute. But there actually is a clue here when the team shows up. Because they said, Musgrave told us that you would need our help. Now, we already know from Lindsay's message and everything else that, like, whoever's working with this is working with Davian. So would, would Brazel, who's trying – Ethan's the only one who can get this. If, if he's working with Davian, why does Brazel try to keep Ethan from leaving? He's trying to actually keep him in a cell. But if, if Brazel was working with him, he would need to get the rabbit's foot. The fact that Musgrave sends the team to help him, and it's all about get the rabbit's foot, is the actual clear moment where if you rewatch this movie, you can tell it was Billy Crudup who was the traitor and not Lawrence Fishburne. So I don't know if you clued into that at any point. No, I, I'm still confused as to what the fuck Billy Crudup's doing there with, with freaking... I don't get it. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad, not not that, that you don't get it, but because I think if a Mission Impossible movie doesn't have one moment where the first time you watch the movie you're like still scratching your head, then it's not a Mission Impossible movie. So, I mean, this movie's way simpler, I think, than all of the other movies uh, just in like the, the fact that we don't know what's going on, that they don't tell you what the rabbit's foot is, 
that we don't get a lot of these swerves with the audience. But the fact that they still have that one in there that can confuse you, I'm happy for that. I'm ha- either that or Ben's just particularly dumb. Um, well, either way, we know I know the answer to that. Yeah. Uh, so you covered all the movie here. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> one thing I want to mention before I forget, like um, Michael Giacuno is like, yeah, it's great score, but there are so many sections of this where it just sounds like he's lost score. Um, there's there's just some there's a few scenes where it just it just sounds like he's sort of generic lost score. I don't know if you kind of know lost enough to kind of pick up on that, but um, the I mean him as a Czech guy is great. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the okay. fact that we have to have Shanghai giant letters China because you're always confused that it's going to be like Shanghai Winnipeg or something like that. <laughs> um, I mean, it's it's great sort of tense scene when he's going through that building with a gun. And I mean, the, the thing that kind of he's had what 48 hours he's got, and then basically we're down to only a couple of hours left. Why is it taking so long to get there? Like, has he stopped yeah. to have a massage? As, you know, it's what, like, probably a 15-hour flight or something to Shanghai, and he was sort of held up in IMF for a couple of hours. But, you know, this is his wife. This isn't like the last movie was just Tandy Newton who he's fallen in love with because they crashed over a cliff. Mm. You know, like, this is his wife. <laughs> he's, he's leaving IMF for this. Um, I The whole the roof sequence and everything, like, I, it's kind of interesting that they do reference the whole, the scene from the first one. Cause I mean, they're breaking into the freaking CIA in the first movie. And this is them just going swinging off the top of some buildings in Shanghai. So, you know, it, it is always that way, isn't it? Where every single movie, they're trying to do one up on the last, you know, impossible mission. But even the one going through the grills in Sydney, I think seemed more impossible than this one. Um, I do like them throwing baseballs at the roof. Chinese guys. Oh, what the hell are the baseballs? Like, what's going on? She had hockey pucks. That would have confused the shit out of them. Um, but I actually kind of, I like the fact that, like, we don't see what goes on in the building. So it's kind yeah. of the opposite where I was saying about how, you know, it's a bit, I'm maybe not the biggest one with the rabbit's foot. Like, it's a bit, it would be nice to have some explanation. But I, I think this actually works, except for the dumbness of, oh, I'm praying because my cat went missing or something like that. Um... But the the fact that this truck crashes in the middle of downtown Shanghai, and then all of a sudden he's like running through the street after dropping the freaking rabbits. What if that's like a nuclear bomb and he dropped it? Um, and he's just no traffic gets stopped because of this giant semi trailer blocking downtown Shanghai. I do also like the bit where he goes into the building and that janitor just stares at him. Yeah, it's <laughs> <laughs> like huh, what? Um. But yeah, I, I wrote that in massive letters on my notes. Like, how the hell do they not get signal in Shanghai, one of the most technically advanced cities in the world, yet they can get it in freaking outback Australia? And this is six years later. Mobile technology has increased since the year 2000. You know, I think we still had analog in the year 2000. Um, so, yeah, and I, I love the, you know, the drink it, no questions. Like, if you get handed that and you just got to drink it, what are you going to like, oh. That's it's another kind roofie. Of full on there, but um, how far am I going here? We stopped at this scene. Yeah, that's about the end. Okay, cool. All right. <laughs> <laughs> okay, <sex>. um, <laughs> just uh, doing a bit of research here. Um, I, I don't think you could put in Langley, but j- the closest thing I could find, Norfolk, Virginia, to Shanghai. Uh, I have a flight here that would take, or a series of flights that would take twenty hours and ten minutes with only one stop. 22 hours and 50 minutes with one stop, 
21 hours and 25 minutes with two stops. So we're basically looking at 20 to 23 hours, maybe. Um, The maximum I'm seeing here is 24 hours and 20 minutes. So, I mean, I'm still saying he stopped to brush up on his check. Like, he... he (laughs) (laughs) It's applying the makeup. It's applying, he's like, you know, oh, damn it, I can't get this moustache to sit. Yeah, exactly. He's wasting some time here. Uh, But... Yeah, I mean, we get that crazy henchman back, too, which I like. It's a drink it, no questions. And he's like, okay. <laughs> he's being roofied as well. <laughs> There's a lot of that in this movie. That's what Mallory says to me every night before we go to bed. I was, it makes sense now. <laughs> I thought that was, I love you because you're a little bit gay. <laughs> wow, Colin, that hurts my feelings. <laughs> uh, when Ethan eventually does wake up here briefly, it's because they're shooting something up his nose. <laughs> Which, have you ever seen Total Recall? Yeah, of course, yeah. Yeah, I mean, this. every time I see this, all I could think about was uh, the opposite of this, where Arnold Schwarzenegger's pulling the thing that's in his head out through his nose, and that's where you get the... <laughs> you know if there's a movie with three booed women in it, I'm seeing it. <laughs> <laughs> um, that confused me as a child. Can I just point that out? I don't think I'd seen them at that point in my life. So I'm like, wait a minute, what? Wait, the first time you saw it was three of them. Well, and like, you, as in there's like, three boobs, right? Oh, so. they have three of them? <laughs> you don't know that they have three of them? No, no, I'm saying, like, you said that you confused you as a child. Like, what, did you get a little bit older? And then the first time you actually <laughs> saw a naked woman, you're like, wait, where's the third one? <laughs> I've never seen a naked woman, Colin. I'm gay. <laughs> So when the man with the golden gun with Roger Moore has the third nipple, you're like, I'm a woman. We all I'm like, oh, it's just, it's just a common thing. We, I'm, I'm missing one. I'm the odd one out. <laughs> but um, I will just cover, I guess, pretty much the rest of the movie here. Uh, so when he comes to, we basically cut back towards the um, the. Oh, quickly, there's the team cut landing and then brazzles like we have a lot to talk about team uh which again on a repeat viewing you realize well it can't be him but they're still trying to throw off the scent which will cover in the next scene what your actual reaction is when they do the reveal but uh we just cut back to that opening scene which that was the other thing i always liked because i think i'd forgotten about it even though it's such a dynamic opening scene by the time you get here i'm i'm not even thinking about oh what about the torture scene even when i rewatch the movie it catches me off guard because of how quickly it's introduced which is great when it's right back in that torture scene and there's something with like the fact that philip seymour hoffman keeps complete eye contact with tom cruise the whole time and I- mm-hmm. I never noticed that until I was looking for this time. What is it about this performance that actually just keeps getting better for me? And I think that's one of the things that it is, is because I don't know. Maybe I have to watch other movies, but I don't know if a lot of actors do that. They, you can see them looking, but there's you. There's something different you can tell about the way he's looking at him, where you realize he's making complete eye contact the whole time and not blinking half the time and just not even flinching. It's just it's so sinister. And people didn't. It would be interesting to see if this movie, uh, if critics who weren't as high on his performance when this first came out, if they would turn around. You know, they probably would now because they feel like they need to respect the memory of Philip Seymour Hoffman. But show him some respect. Yeah, <laughs> show some respect. But uh, I think that 
this this performance definitely ages much better than I think people would have given it credit for. Maybe that's just something about subtlety and acting just becoming better now. But um, the whole thing plays out all the way up to count number 10 and he pulls a trigger. But now we actually it doesn't cut away the credits. We see Ethan react as he's seen his wife die here. And it's, it's actually heartbreaking to watch like Tom Cruise's performance. Like I still will maintain this is probably the best scene he has in this entire movie series here. Um, and, and part of that is I think from this point on, Tom Cruise takes more of a backseat as far as like the character development stuff goes. But still, like it's not downplaying this at all. It's, it's incredible to watch this scene. And Davy just leaves the room. And you start to hear him whisper off camera. Uh, where he says, oh, I pushed him as far as he could go, and now I know he's telling the truth. And then in walks Musgrave. So this is the moment where you know, you're surprised, because I was still surprised the first time when they revealed him. I think one of the other things was that maybe the whole Carrie Russell small role threw me for a loop, and even Simon Pegg is a small role in this threw me for a loop, that I was convinced at this point in this movie that, I kind of thought Billy Crudup would have a bigger role. I'm a little disappointed. And then they reveal him here. And you know, maybe if you'd watched part one so closely to this, you would have seen it coming because they are doing the same thing with Kit Ridge and uh, with Phelps in the first one, that it's it's the opposite of what you think, which, which one's the traitor. I have a bit of a problem with how his reasoning ages here because as Billy Crudup's basically explaining to him, he, he briefly mentions, you know, uh, the, the thing about the micro dot and that's basically what he's focusing on here is like did did she know about me did she believe that it was brazil it's his reasoning for why he's helping davian that i don't like because not to get political or anything but this just stinks of 2006 conspiracy theories about george w bush because <laughs> we're coming off of michael moore's fahrenheit 9-11 here and at the time, everybody was just so down on George W. Bush for political reasons that they were willing to believe every outrageous theory on the planet, including 9-11's an inside job and all that Michael Moore stuff, that now, I'd say the majority of people now look back on this and are like, yeah, that was pretty far-fetched. It's just people were angry at the time for you know different reasons. And this this whole reasoning here is basically he is the inside man. You know, 9-11's an inside job. Uh, we're going to work with Davian and we're going to release this thing and then that'll give us our reasoning where we could go in to this Middle Eastern country and declare war on them. It's just, I think at the time, I don't know, if it, it's definitely not played so obvious. It is semi-subtle, but looking at this now back as a 2006 movie, viewing it in 2018, it's a little bit forced. Uh, but still, it's such a small part of the movie. Uh, the... Escape happens here when he basically says, okay, I just need to uh, make sure my wife's alive. And Musgrave's like, oh, of course. And he puts him on the phone. He asks her, what's the name of that lake? And she goes, Lake Wanaka. Now, she didn't remember this at the beginning. Like, how bad would this have been if she was just <laughs> like, I don't remember the name. He goes, she's a plant killer. <laughs> okay. They pull the trigger. Uh, I should mention I missed the reveal here that it was just yes. a match. <laughs> it's just a mask. Thanks for that. Uh, the poor old translator. <laughs> yeah, the, the translator who who let him take off his shirt in Maggie Hughes' hotel room, <laughs> and uh, she's the one behind the mask here of Julia. So it would have been so funny if they had revealed the mask and it was Richard Roxburgh again. Like that's just yeah. the ongoing joke. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but 
I think it's such a great reveal where they pull out because I was the masks were used so sparingly in this one that when they did reveal that it wasn't quite as obvious. I think we even talk in part two that it's a good surprise when, you know, uh, the Richard Roxborough mask comes off and it's Tom Cruise underneath. It's still a good surprise. But when it happens, you're more like, oh, of course, the masks again. Whereas here, it's just the right amount. It's not overdone. But when he puts her on the phone and she actually answers the question right the first time, was that should have been his clue that she's not real because Julia did not remember this. So, yeah, uh, yeah. she should be dead right now. But he bites <laughs> Musgrave's hand, which is maybe the cheapest way Ethan Hunt's ever gotten away. Uh, he knocks him out. He calls Benji. So Simon Pegg's on the phone. Uh, Benji's fantastic here. And I'm so glad they brought him back, which we'll talk about why he came back in part four, which isn't even necessarily because he was really popular in this or that Simon Pegg had suddenly become a big star. It actually had more to do with, you know, contract disputes with other people. But I mean, he, he just owns this where, when he's like, I can't be talking to you right now. I'm hanging up the phone. He's like, no, no, Benji, I need your help. They've got my wife. He goes, listen, you are on Interpol's most wanted list. And that is a spectacular list to be on. <laughs> and then he's like, please help me. He goes, I like my job. I can lose my citizenship. <laughs> and then when he's like, okay, fine, I'll help you. And he's whispering the whole time. And then all of a sudden, hold, please. And he says really loud for everybody here and just transfers the call to another part of the office. Uh, Ethan doing his getaway here. This is where we see the most, this is the most running to him Tom Cruise has ever done. And it's one of those stunts that doesn't get enough credit for being a great stunt. We mentioned like with the, uh, uh, the, the aquarium in part one (laughs) and how quickly he had to run from this real water explosion behind him. Uh, it's the same thing here when he's, uh, running through the streets of Shanghai. I mean, you watch as they're cutting back and forth being shots for one thing and he's jumping through buildings. That's really Tom Cruise doing and this is really Shanghai. But it's the one continuous shot where he's running down a dock and it lasts for probably a Five minute. Five hours. Yeah, it, it, it's still going right now as we like to say. It right? is. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but it's a very long shot and look at the speed that which Tom Cruise is running. I mean, that's basically somebody who's running the 100 meter in the Olympics except he's going well over 100 meters. Uh, it's crazy. kilometers. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's crazy. It's a great shot, you know, to be able to do that in a real location with real people there too. That he's running through. I mean, they were avoiding, you know, people who were all of a sudden, hey, that's Tom Cruise, you know? As <laughs> the only way they could do this. And he's just, that's probably why he ran so fast because they, they wouldn't get the reactions of people. <laughs> um, but it, it's, I mean, he deserves so much credit for just... Uh, for such a small guy, he is so strong. And he's not like a bulky guy. He's just, he's fast, he's strong. And what was his age at this point when he made Mission Impossible 3? Oh, I don't know his age. He has an age since 1982. So, I mean, to me, he's still like 20. So, so at the time they filmed this movie, he was 44. Wow. Uh, and doing a running scene like this, it's insane. Because they're not cutting. It's just one continuous shot. Uh, he eventually gets directed by Benji where to go, which is it's such a fun scene. It's so exciting. I love the music that's playing here, too. Uh, he gets to this uh, Chinese, what do you even call it, like a walking clinic? <laughs> this is a doctor's, it's part doctor's office. It's part restaurant. I don't know what it is. Uh, Conversion like, center. Yeah, it, there's just the one guy who just points to the back when he gets in there. Because it's kind of this awkward thing. He walks in, he just points, she's back there. <laughs> like, this guy is the worst henchman that Davian has. He's got people 
who you know are the the translator obviously that's you know she let him down um he's got crazy british guy he's got elderly chinese people here guarding julia those are the only people guarding her <laughs> kind of lame there uh he eventually does rescue here here uh and i i love as his thing gets activated um the the bug in his head after he gets her or the the the, the nasal charge the explosion whatever it is <laughs> uh davian comes in and he activates this thing and uh he starts like freaking out and and this is i think what makes the fight believable because i remember watching this the first time and kind of being a little bit bothered that with how incredible they made tom cruise in this movie that philip seymour hoffman has a legitimate fight with him but then you kind of have to watch this and remember that he's got this bomb about to go off in his head and it's throbbing and he's got this terrible noise going on it makes sense they'd have this fight and just again how cool philip seymour hoffman is in this scene i mean he's so good He's like, I, I, you remember when I said that I was going to kill uh, uh, you in front of her? No, I'm going to kill her right in front of you. His mm-hmm. voice never changes. It's so He's so scary in this movie. Uh, they get into the little fight here. Uh, I love where he says, uh, you know, she, did, did I tell you that she called out your name? Like, it's just, it's little things like that that even though she's in front of him right now, it's not him taunting. It's just something that he's saying to really make Ethan feel uneasy. I'm watching this thing like, I'm feeling uneasy. The idea that he's, like, torturing her, and she's like, Ethan, Ethan, because you actually hear her in this scene saying Ethan as he's saying that and just taunting him. Uh, they have the fight where they roll out into the street, and he has a... I'm sure you're a fan of speed, and you're thinking the same thing here when... The, he, uh, the, the decapitation scene. Yeah, he just raises him up as a car runs over him and takes off Philip Seymour Hoffman's head. I just want Tom Cruise to be like, yeah, well, I'm taller. Except you ruined that for me. <laughs> is taller. I just wanted to drop an Austin Powers like, now's not one time to lose one's head or something like that. <laughs> He'll never be the head of a major organization. <laughs> <laughs> he got a head of himself. <laughs> uh, another thing that I think Tom Cruise deserves more credit for, this is probably his best performance in the whole franchise. Uh, as he's slowly dying here... It's funny, it's frantic, it's, you know, kind of touching at times when he realizes, like, uh, I need a defibrillator, I need a defibrillator. And, and he's just putting this makeshift MacGyver defibrillator together. And he's explaining, like, some of the funny lines here. It's like, I need you to kill me so that you can bring me back to life. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and uh, when he's testing it, like, he's, he's got the water there and he's got the electrical cable in there. And he flips the switch and he sees sparks everywhere. And just the look on his face looks completely crazy. He goes, Good. <laughs> just sort of moves on. <laughs> like I'm really excited about this. Can't wait um, to die. And then when he's teaching him how to use the gun, uh, he's like, "You need to load it like this, like the batteries and the flashlight at home." And then he's like, "Point and shoot," and he just keeps pointing. Point and shoot. Point and shoot. Point and shoot. It's almost like he has rats all of a sudden. Uh, it, he eventually gets the shock to the head. And that's exactly when, you know, the henchmen come in and now Julia's got to. So it's funny because we bring this up in so many episodes about what things age well in a movie and what don't. You know very well if a movie like this comes out now, people would be complaining, oh, she's just a damsel in distress. I like that she's a damsel in distress in this movie because she's the real person. They do such a good job of selling her as the real person in this movie. And for anybody who would be critical of that. I need to remind them that and, and the TV show Alias, this movie is basically a movie adaptation of Jennifer Garner is the hero and Michael Vartan is the damsel in distress for five seasons. So 
it's not like J.J. Abrams doing anything, but it is, I, I like that she's just, he has to rescue her. But if you really watch this, I always forget that she's kind of the one who has to have this final save the day moment here. And they don't make it so obvious. Again, if this movie's made in 2018, they're making it where it's this heroic moment where she's like, I'm a woman, I can take out any man. It's so much more effective when they don't cram it down your throat like they do here. It's great. She shoots two people after being just taught how to use a gun, one of which is you find out the main villain of this movie, Musgrave. And then when she's finally bringing Ethan back to life because she's the one who has to bring him back to life, I love the, just a typical spy thing. Like he, he immediately is revived, and the first thing he does, like within a split second, he finds a gun and he, he points it and he aims it. And then he's like, he sees the dead body. He's like, did you do that? And she's like, yeah. He goes, wow. <laughs> That's all he says. <laughs> but like, she kind of gets the hero moment at the end of this movie, but it's, it's, it's not so obvious that it's annoying and it doesn't steal his thunder. Cause you know, as we found out mission impossible two, nobody can steal Tom Cruise's thunder. Uh, quick wrap up here is they're walking away. Um, when, he is saying, I'll tell you everything. And she goes, uh, or he's like, I work for uh, a company. They're called the IMF. And she goes, what does it stand for? He goes, Impossible Mission Force, which <laughs> they've never addressed in this movie. And in the old TV show, it would say, like, you would get the mission briefings. They'd get, like, a file folder. And it would say IMF on it. And underneath it would say Impossible Mission Force. So it's not like this is unknown. But it is cheesy. And I like that she laughs. They finally bring it up in the, the third movie. And she just laughs about it. It's like, no, seriously. He goes, no, that's what it's called. Uh, we get the last scene here with Brazil where he's like, uh, here's a little something for the things. I've-. He didn't put him through anything. Like, why is Brazil buying him off here? It, like, it actually really bothers me because Brazil didn't do anything to him. All he did was try to throw him in, in jail. You know, <laughs> but he had reason to at that point. I mean, Ethan probably did much worse things to the United States government throughout the course of this movie and not to mention the Vatican. I mean, he's put the folks life risk. Yeah. Why don't you take some of that, that check that you just gave him that restitution and donate it to the Catholic church who you just ruined. Um, but this little bribery scene he has here where he's like, Oh, the white house has it. I wish the movie just would have ended with them on the bridge. Cause I just, I don't like this scene with Brazel where he's like, the white house has a job. They're very interested in you in, and uh, then the whole, um, what is the rabbit's foot? If you promise to stay, I'll tell you. I'll see you later, Brazil. He just walks away. And then we get this really cheesy last scene with all the team congratulating her. Like, nobody's supposed to tell even their spouses that they work for the IMF. And they just allow her to come in here and meet everybody. And we have this, this slow-mo shot as the, the happy music's playing. And Everybody's laughing, and when they walk out, there's actually a shot of everybody in the room applauding for them as they leave this happy couple. It's the scene from Titanic when she has that vision of them all getting kissing and clapping as they're on the stairs. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) It's it's the, hey, there's J.J. Abrams. This is the lost heaven scene. Uh, Spoiler, we haven't got to the end yet, Colin. But this is like... Until uh, they all die and in purgatory that entire sixth season with all the flash sides, I would have never guessed that. Yes. <laughs> but this is the same cheesy thing like you said from Titanic here. I just... Oh, I hate it. Um, I don't hate it, hate it, but I just... I always wish that the movie just ended with them with the Impossible Mission Force line. That would be so much better. Uh, and then we just cut to the credits, which, quick mention, uh, the Michael Giacchino Mission Impossible theme that plays here... 
which is the closest we ever get to the original Mission Impossible theme. I did uh, a charity event uh, a few years ago where I rappelled down the tallest building in Winnipeg, and uh, so your shed. They, my, <laughs> I just my shed. Yes, <laughs> no. It was a couple hundred, like it was a couple hundred feet. It was a huge building. The museum and, uh, of peace or whatever that place human where he went. no 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 it was uh the hydro building downtown winnipeg we're going to that when i'm there later this year i'm taking mallory to the museum of human rights yeah we have to go we have to do another video there <laughs> now you're persecuted <laughs> i've been sued by tom cruise because you're gay <laughs> my human rights were violated when i wasn't sued for all the the, the slander i put against tom cruise in the episode tom of cruise is on there saying i have been outed like Zeke on Survivor by some podcast hosts. <laughs> and they went on to be successful realtors. <laughs> uh, but uh, when I rappelled down the building, uh, I did it as a team with my brother-in-law, and we were able to take two songs. And I basically insisted, I'm like, okay, I'll do this, but we got to rappel to the Mission Impossible theme, the end title music from Mission Impossible 3, and uh, the James Bond theme from Dr. No. So I got to do a stunt. And the entire time is the Mission Impossible themes. You can't see it on the video because it was filmed from too far away. But as I'm coming down the building and it's finishing off, I'm actually like, dun, 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 dun. I'm humming it to myself <laughs> as I'm repelling. It was like one of the greatest moments of my life. I just want to say it. But of course, they got to ruin it after that with Kanye West's Impossible. <laughs> the worst <laughs> theme song from any Mission Impossible movie. Uh, sad way to finish this great movie with a cheesy final scene and a Kanye West song. Well, it's no diamonds are from Sierra Leone, uh, by Kanye West, uh, another iconic use of music. Diamonds are forever. Um, yeah, I, that running shot is incredible. Like I wonder yeah. how many times Tom Cruise just was like, cut, I do it again. I just want to show off how good I am at running. <laughs> <laughs> just like, Seriously, just how he maintains that the entire way. That's like, wow. How he did not make the US team for Beijing two yeah. years later based purely <laughs> on that running. Holy crap, that guy is good. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I don't really have a whole lot to add. I mean, it's, I, I am confused with the whole thing with Billy Crudup and whatever. Like it's, they've got the rabbit's foot, but he knows they've got the rabbit's foot, but then he does. I don't know. I don't, like- I don't understand. He needed Ethan to get the rabbit's foot, but I think the whole idea is that he knew about this micro dot, and that's why he needed Ethan, because he's like, I need to know, did she tell anybody about me? Did she believe it was Brazel? Uh, is IMF on to me? Which, again, only makes sense with that deleted scene, because otherwise he never knows about the micro dot. Right, okay then. Well, also, poor old Philip Seymour Hoffman getting splattered by a, a car, which, I mean, thank God Tom Cruise is short. Because uh, that car, the way it, like, perfectly... Like, imagine if he misjudged that. If Ethan's like, oh, yeah, here we go. Oh, we're both dead. Uh, (laughs) Like, you know, good on him. Uh, I do also like when he's, like, about to die. And he's just like, you know, she's about to zap him. And he's like, wait, 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 wait. I love you. (laughs) Isn't that how he died at the beginning of this movie? Just delaying for a few seconds too long? But again, like, back to my point about Julia, how she's just so calm and blasé about this. Like, if, I, if I'm if i waking up tomorrow and I'm being held by Philip Seymour Hoffman, first of all, hey, great, cool, he's alive. But secondly, <laughs> like, I'm going to be looking at Mallory like, what the fuck, Mallory? Like, 
don't go off to make coffee every day. Like, what the hell? What is the deal with you being a spy? <laughs> um, well, she's even like, so Ethan, can you tell me, what are we doing in China? <laughs> Just like, you know, you'd have questions like, so I hear spies have to go deep undercover and you might have to sleep with people in order to maintain your cover. How many people have you slept with, Ethan? And how many of them were men? Those are the um, questions you know, on the Americans. They ask those questions. Yeah, well, there you go. I've never seen the Americans, so... Yeah. But... Um, <laughs> that's a great comeback, Ben. Um, <laughs> but I, I love his reaction when he does wake up. So he grabs the gun and that just, like, stare on his face. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I want him to go full-on uh, Superman from Justice League and just go around and start, like... Picking people up and bashing them, <laughs> just like <laughs> grabbing jewels. That's a Superman impersonation. <laughs> Iconic Superman line from history. <laughs> that sounds uh, like my Czech impersonation. <laughs> and you're Scottish, okay. and you're Irish, and you're Chinese. <laughs> no one okay. goes to Arnold. <laughs> <laughs> I speak English. Oh, <laughs> uh, but yeah, it is very cheesy. And like, and like, even just the bit when it's like, oh, if you stay, I'll tell you what the rabbit's foot is. I want Nathan to be like, okay, <laughs> <laughs> what is it? Um, okay, I have not seen the fourth movie, and I don't know if you want to spoil it for me or not. But tell me, Julia, like, is not in it, or does she get killed in like the opening scene or something like that? Um, all I'm going to say is there's a very interesting story arc with Julia's character and she's not really in the second one, but the story kind of continues. So you'll have to wait to see, but it's actually really interesting. But like, they've got to make it so he's not married because he's got to like hook up with, I don't know, somebody else in the well, next movie, right? No, I mean, that's the other thing that, I, as I said, and this will talk this more in the next couple movies, but they downplay the Ethan Hunt character, he more just becomes, like, the centerpiece for these movies and the action, and he's definitely still the main star. Like, everybody else is always supporting, but instead of making them his personal stories with 4 and 5, the movies become more about he's there and all the other supporting characters have their own side stories, and that's where, like, the personal stories come in. So he takes more of a backseat as far as the character development goes after this. Okay, well... I look forward to seeing domesticated Ethan taking the kids to school in the meantime as we learn about Alec Baldwin and stuff. Like, are you saying you would want to see more of Julia or you don't want Oh, well, it's... To me, when you go full out and marry off as somebody like Ethan Hunt, Mm -hmm. it's kind of like when James Bond gets married. He's never going to stay married. She's totally going to die. Yeah. Uh, You know, it's it's the end of um, Spectre with Leah Sadu. Like, it's, it's... where what are they going to do with that in Bond 25? Like, it's kind of, you know, that is that whole thing where we mentioned about James Bond, you know, he often hooks up with a woman in the end, he's floating in space, he's doing whatever. Christmas comes, you know, twice a year or whatever. But then it's kind mm-hmm. of like, that was the trope, James Bond. You don't expect him to be, because they didn't continue after each other until Daniel Craig came along. Yeah. You know, it was kind of, each one restarted itself. Whereas, I think with... Yeah, you've, as you've kind of said, most of these Mission Impossible films are kind of their own entity, um, moving forward. But I think it's sort of, 
there is a difference between hooking up with somebody and being happily... As much as we joke about how badly in love he fell in with Tandy Newton, they're not married. So, I mean, you know, couples break up. So, like, this is the difference is that he's married at the end of this movie. So it's, it's to me, something that you can't not address in the next mm. film. And I guess I'm, I've never seen it, so I don't know what they do with this. So yeah. that's why my question is, like, surely she just dies because, you know... People it's, watch spy movies. We we don't want happily married spy off in the world. We want the the sexy intrigue of them hooking up with people as they do their missions. That's what a spy movie is. I mean, it, it's definitely addressed. Uh, it's a major part. It's actually a major part of the next movie without her even really being in it. But uh, w- well, I, I agree with you because, as I said, 2006, maybe even a couple of years ago, I wasn't really crazy about Julia's character and. I'm still not absolutely crazy about her in this movie, uh, but I just I understand the purpose of it, and I can recognize how well it was done, especially in comparison to J.J. Abrams trying to do this on Alias for five years, and it's one of the few things that he really struggled with. Um, but I, I don't know. I think it's done really effectively in this movie. But I'll completely agree with you. Like for me, there's no place for her after this. Like it it it, it doesn't work, even if it's not about him hooking up with other people. Just the spy life doesn't work. That's why the first two movies, I think, worked on their own because it's not about you know these happy lives, and that's why maybe it doesn't make sense for him to have had Naya in this third movie uh, or even to address it because in reality they would just sort of have their nice vacation and then uh, whenever you know the helicopter came in and gave them the sunglasses uh, as they're off somewhere rock climbing, um, it would have been like, all right, babe, see you later uh, because that's that's, <laughs> that's the you know, for better or worse, that's the life of a spy. Not that we know everything about spies in real life, but we know enough. We've we seen the know. Americans. We've seen James Bond. Yes, we know everything. I also saw Get Smart. So, <laughs> yeah. Uh, oh, nothing else I to like add on the end of this movie? Cheesy final um, scene? Nah, that's shit. All right. <laughs> scene, not the movie. How bad is the Kanye song? Like, seriously, I can't be alone I- in this. Can I be completely honest with you? I didn't listen to it. I didn't realize, like, I... I kind of was going to say, like, is there even any song with this? Because I kind of just skipped through the mm-hmm. credits quickly to see if there was a scene afterwards, and I didn't listen to it. So uh, I want to listen to it now because I like Kanye West, but well, that's you me. I have bad taste. Yeah, it's it's terrible. It really is. Uh, I want to go back on our um, Canadian singing and stuff like that. Drake. Yes. From Degrassi. <laughs> <laughs> just had to put it out there. Drake. Yeah. It's funny because I was just watching uh, De- 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 Degrassi: The Next Generation uh, just before we record <laughs> this episode, Drake. and I'm like, Jamie, tell me if you recognize any of the people in there. And she's like, Yeah, some of them. I'm like, No, no, specifically one of the actors. She's like, Oh, that's that 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 guy. I'm like, Yeah, Drake. Uh, yeah, Toronto Go. Raptors number one fan. But yeah, the Kanye song's terrible. I'm sorry, and and this is coming from the guy who is defending. Uh, Aiko Aiko, <laughs> last episode. <laughs> yeah. Um, mm. <laughs> Anyways, so a couple of things to touch on this movie. Now, we mentioned all the bad publicity going into this. The expectations of this movie were still huge. I think it had one of the highest theater counts ever. The promotion was, like, out of this world, like, how much this movie was promoted. One interesting promotion thing, which you can find all this uh, pretty much all over the place now, although I knew nothing about it at the time, is that they had placed... Uh, these little boxes, like these uh, audio recording boxes or whatever, in newspaper bins or whatever, where you know you could buy a newspaper or a f- free flyer box or whatever that would play like the Mission Impossible theme or things like that when you opened up the box, and it was a way to kind of do this this weird 
promotion for the movie. But people started calling them in because they would see these through the windows and they called them in as bomb threats. So it kind of backfired, <laughs> but they, they kept them in there regardless all the way past the release of the movie. Um, but other than that, I mean, I guess the opening is the main thing to talk about here because huge theater, 4,000 theaters, which was the fourth largest theater count ever at the point this came out. Uh, the movie opens with 47 million. So putting that in perspective... Uh, we're coming off of Mission Impossible 1, which opened over $50 million. Uh, Mission Impossible 2 opened $57 million. So this is 47 I think this is part of the problem where just the media blows things out of proportion. Because $47 million, I mean, yeah, it was not what the first two were. And we're kind of in an era here where opening grosses are getting bigger and bigger for each movie. I mean, you look at even the Star Wars prequels. The opening weekend of Attack of the Clones is higher than The Phantom Menace. The opening weekend for Revenge of the Sith is higher than everything ever released. Uh, the Dark Knight movies did the same thing. Each one kind of got bigger. So sequels were big at this point, and the fact is it's down only $10 million. And we're, we're right now seeing Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom getting tons of praise for opening at over $150 million, which, by the way, is $50 million down from the previous Jurassic World. And this is looked at as a success. It was just a weird 2006 thing where movies were changing again this is like the point in the internet where downloading is becoming really big especially for movies you know prior to this people only thought of downloading for music now pirated movies is becoming a huge thing so much so that by the time mission impossible 3 comes out on dvd i was watching my dvd the very first thing that plays is an anti-movie pirating <laughs> public service announcement so i don't think that gets enough credit because if we go through like 2006, I mean, I, I I can look it up here in a second, uh, but it'll be interesting to see what other movies opening weekends were. This was the first movie of the summer, so arguably this is the first big opening of the year, and I think people just sort of panicked and said, uh, Mission Impossible flopped because it made $10 million less, and they didn't realize that the movie-going audience changed. The same thing would happen a few years later, like, you know, you had this enormous box office success for something like Avatar, and then a year or two later, you had pretty much every movie take a hit at the box office, which had more to do with the economy tanking than anything else. And you had a movie like Tron Legacy, which comes out and opens, you know, with half as much of Avatar, makes about half as much as Avatar. And they're like, the movie bombed. It's like, well, no, it's just if you look at everything after that, all movies grosses started dropping. So it's totally, you know, uh, off topic debate that we could get into. Uh, but just looking at um, some other opening weekends here. So Mission Impossible 3, uh, we had the Da Vinci Code open after that. Now, Da Vinci Code was the movie that knocked Mission Impossible from the number one spot. That movie opened over $100 million. People were talking about that before it came out, like it was going to be the biggest movie in history. So that one, you could say the movie bombed in comparison. Um, Cars, Cars opened over $60 million, or sorry, $80 million, so a big opening weekend. But again, none of these movies would go on to become like massive box office hits. Uh, Superman Returns suffered this from the same problem as Mission Impossible. People said it opened with like $90 million. It was a bomb. Uh, hmm. The movie definitely did not bomb. I mean, opening weekend, $47 million. Uh, only other movies that opened against it was An American Haunting, which was in third place. Uh, the previous weekend's number one movie, RV, <laughs> with Robin Williams, <laughs> was in number two. Stick it, Jojo. Stick it in number four, United oh, 93. I love that movie. 
Ice Age, The Meltdown, and Six, Silent Hill, Scary Movie 4, Aquila and the Bee, and Hoot oh. rounding out the top ten. Great Stiff movie. Uh, but it was number one for two weeks in a row. And again, they talked at the time about it had a 47% drop in its second weekend. That's pretty good for a movie nowadays. This is why I'm saying movie audiences just changed and uh, movie grosses changed. Following that, it would drop to third place with $11 million, 54% drop. But then if you look at its fourth weekend on, this is why I think word of mouth really kicked in. It had like four or five straight weeks here where it was clinging to the top five. Uh, it, it's number three, it's number four, it's number four, it's number five. When do you see any movie that can stay in the top five for six straight weeks when it's being considered a bomb? Even in 2006. And this movie was losing in its, like, after it had been out for a few weeks, it's losing only 38%, 21%, 33%, 35%. So you can see even just in the drop-off it has week for week that word of mouth was kicking in a couple of weeks in, and this movie was performing much stronger because for a movie to open $47 million, you know, to go on to still make uh, $400 million worldwide, I mean, obviously something picked up with the movie. So uh, do you remember any of the box office stuff when this movie came out? I mean, I'm just looking here on that opening weekend as well. You forgot to mention its big rival, uh, The Fall of Fujimura, which made uh, $779 at the box office that weekend. So, which they also um, that said was, was a bomb because they expected... I know, right? Just, oh, such an underrated film. Such, yeah. We need to do that movie already. Uh, no, I don't really know much about it. Uh, I mean, I'm looking at the 2006 yearly um, one where Mission Impossible 3 only gets 14th. Um, and the fact that Click made $3 million more to Mission Impossible. I like Click. Don't mm-hmm. laugh. Um, and it's weird to look at that year, the fact that um, Casino Royale only made $167 million, which, again, yeah. we know at the time was the highest James Bond film, but, I mean, considering the reputation that's gone on to have. Um, and Superman Returns is kind of the opposite, as you were mentioning. Like, I mean, everyone considers that was a bomb and a flop, and it was just it was terrible. It made $200 million at the box office. Yeah. That's 2006 standards. That's not a bomb. Um, there are but plenty of Marvel intriguing. movies that made less. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I think it's just, it's fascinating to look that this is the lowest grossing Mission Impossible film. And, cause I mean, I vaguely remember the release around this and kind of it not getting negative reviews. I remember a lot of people praising Philip Seymour Hoffman and maybe that was just coming off the back of the fact that he had just, what, won an Oscar that year. Yeah. Um, and I just remember a lot of people talking this up on, on media here in Australia. So, um, it's, it's, it intrigues me that this can be the lowest rating of all of them. Uh, and that last week can be the highest rating of all of them when, I mean, this to me stands out so much more as a better film and even just kind of one of these ones that you can just put on in the background and just watch, you know, it's, it's, you mentioned about how it's, it doesn't have as much to think about, say, as say the first one at least did. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it is kind of almost just, you know, your popcorn box office film, you know, blockbuster that you can just watch. But, um, yeah, the fact that this is the lowest ranking of all of them and I haven't seen the next two yet, but that surprises me. And, you said like the lowest grossing. It's basically the lowest grossing any way you look at it. Domestically, uh, the next lowest grossing was the first one, which made uh, how much more? Forty-six million dollars more than this ten years earlier. So that's like a huge chunk. Um, for worldwide, this is the lowest grossing. It made three hundred ninety-seven million dollars. The next lowest grossing is the first movie, which made sixty million dollars more than that ten years earlier. Uh, what is interesting to see, though is um, the fact that uh, when we get into four and five, 
that it's not the domestic grosses that are necessarily making the difference. It's the overseas grosses, even though the domestic grosses for four and five are much higher. They're not that much higher than like the other movies. They're about on level with uh, everything except for three. But yeah, three definitely was the lowest of all of them. And I think there was so much media attention just on this not performing. I don't even think where where the movie expected because like Tom Cruise a few years prior to this set a record for being the first actor to have five straight movies make over a hundred million dollars. So to make over a hundred million dollars was still the benchmark. This movie made one hundred thirty four domestically. Uh, it made four hundred million dollars worldwide. So. It's still a hit. It's just not a Mission Impossible size hit. And there definitely was a bit of panicking after this happened where so much of the bad attention led to Paramount. All the all the stories at the time was basically saying Paramount wants to continue with Mission Impossible, but they don't want Tom Cruise anymore. So the word at the time was that they were going to, in a few years, reboot Mission Impossible and have Brad Pitt take over, which you easily <laughs> could have done. You don't need to have it. But that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard for anybody who actually reported that. Like, yeah, it might make sense that the studio would want something like that, but the studio had no control. Tom Cruise was the producer. He had the rights to Mission Impossible. You're not going to make one of these movies unless Tom Cruise was the one saying, I'm so sick of Tom Cruise jumping off couches, (laughs) lying about being gay. I just want to replace it with Brad Pitt, a man's man who is straight. <laughs> the man in the morning and a man at night. A man Brian at night. He never has anything questionable go on with his spouses. So let's just get a real man in here. I mean, that didn't happen, but that was a big story at the time. And that was the only talk about a Mission Impossible 4 for a long time. Because we flash forward five years, which really isn't as big of a gap as there was between two and three. But five years later, they finally make four. And it had a lot to do with uh, uh, Tropic Thunder, obviously, getting people to appreciate Tom Cruise again. And, uh, you know, Valkyrie got decent reviews, made a decent amount of money. Uh, So people were slowly turning around on him. But it was more than anything the appreciation for Mission Impossible 3 that gave us Mission Impossible 4. Because those people who rejected it when it first came out eventually saw the movie. People like my brother and the friend that I went to with. When they gave the movie a shot, they're like, this is a really good movie, and we want to see more like this. So Mission Impossible 4, which we're going to talk about next week, uh, really, I think, has um, more thanks to give to Mission Impossible 3 failing, but being a good movie, uh, than it does just general interest. Because I don't think anybody was really dying for a Mission Impossible 4 after 3 comes out. Did Will Smith break that record? Of the consecutive ones, because didn't Will Smith have like about ten in a row or something ridiculous I'm sh- like I'm that? Sure he had an incredible people, strike rate. Yeah, I'm sure a lot of people have broken it now. Um, I know that Tom Cruise has ended at five, and at the same time, Jim Carrey had I think hit five because I think he had the two Ace Venturas, The Mask, Dumb and Dumber, and Batman. Yeah, so Jim Carrey had five before the Cable Guy ruined it. So uh, it, I wouldn't be surprised if Will Smith was the guy that eventually broke. Yeah, it. I think. He had it was just a ridiculous streak, and I think it was after Earth ended it. Um, but you know, I think it was from about Independence Day right up to whatever year after Earth came out. He just he had this ridiculous record that every single movie he was in went over a hundred million dollars. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I just I always assumed this film was critically liked and did well. It's just it's interesting to kind of 
see the history of it. Because, I mean, it's it's also, I mean, with Mission Impossible 2, the fact, I mean, there's such big gaps in between these movies. Isn't the gap between the new one we're about to get and number five the shortest gap between these yeah. films? Because yeah, by far. it seems to be there's like about a four or five-year break between these movies. And it's just, it's incredible that we've got one now, what, two years after the last one? So, and it's... You mentioned about how kind of he's the longest sort of serving person in one of these franchises, ongoing franchises. I mean, Mission Impossible to me is almost like the forgotten franchise that people only talk about it when one comes out. It's it's not like a James Bond where everyone's always sort of associating James Bond with things, you know. I mean, Marvel, it's a bit hard to compare. We get three of them a year, but it just, it always seems to me that Mission Impossible, it's like, oh yeah, that's serious. That's all right. There's a new one coming. Okay. Mm-hmm. Like it just it doesn't seem to get hyped as much as some other franchises, which it's it's interesting to me. It's kind of where the Fast and the Furious movies were a few movies ago, where every single time one would come out, nobody would really think of it, and then it would open fifty, sixty, seventy million dollars, and people were like, wow, I guess a lot of Fast and Furious fans still out there. In a way, it's similar to like the Jurassic World movies. Like we've talked about that every single week on the Jurassic World ones, that nobody really expected that the Lost World was going to make as much money as it. Definitely nobody expected that Jurassic Park 3 was going to make as much as it did, and nobody saw Jurassic World coming, and now we're seeing the same thing here. So I mean, you get so much with like Star Wars and Marvel nowadays that I think people will forget pretty much anything that you know do- doesn't uh, have the Disney name attached to uh, a property that they bought. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've just I found Will Smith quickly here. Um, he, from Independence Day through... Well, okay, it... it Independence Day through to Wild Wild West, because then you've got The Legend of Bagger Vance, actually, <laughs> that movie, uh, and Ali in between that didn't make 100 million. Mm. But then you have From Men in Black 2 all the way up to 7 pounds. So that's 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8 movies in a row. Ooh. Men in Black 2, Bad Boys 2, iRobot, Shark Tale, Hitch, Pursuit of Happiness, I Am Legend, and Hancock. And that was followed then by Men in Black 3, then After Earth, and he hasn't had 100 million... Oh, okay, no, he has Suicide Squad. Um, but look at his movies after After Earth. Focus, Concussion, Suicide Squad, and Collateral Beauty. So poor old Will Smith's in a bit of a funk at the moment, isn't he? I just want to say um, Focus, that's the one with Margot Robbie, right? Yeah. Yeah, I saw that movie. It's not a bad movie. It's actually pretty good. It's, it's weird, though, because it feels like it's two completely different movies. But there is one scene in that movie which is just absolutely fantastic. Uh, but... Is it Margot Robbie naked? Or should I be seeing this movie? Or... <laughs> no, uh, it's a good scene still. Sorry, though, Will ben. Smith you naked. Can... Will Smith naked. You, yeah, you can give it a shot, Ben. There is plenty for you to enjoy. Um you and Jamie have a lot in common watching movies. Uh, Nudity. Uh, I need to go there. We, need, we need to get the IMDb tags up again for this film. Sorry. Yeah, I, yeah, I that's right. My- uh, I'll bring that up in a second. But quickly going through the uh, – well, we'll save the reviews for last because then we'll add ours in there. So we started this last week, the IMDb tags, which is uh, absolutely hilarious that uh, we can find out what a movie is associated with or what things you can find – on IMDb that shares similar things. So some of the great <laughs> here, plot keywords, um, fictional government agency, okay, Vatican, villain, Luther Stickle character. <laughs> I want to see which other movies have a Luther Stickle character in it. Uh, engagement party, diehard scenario, female gunfighter. Who was a gunfighter in this movie? There was a woman. I mean, a woman um, fires a gun. Felicity? 
Um, here's 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 your favorite one: kissing while having sex. <laughs> Damsel in distress. Oh, there it is. Woman in bra. Female removes her clothes. Oh, where's that list? Female removes her clothes. Dead woman with eyes open. <laughs> <laughs> so this one I'm clicking on, okay? That but that month is coming soon. This week on the Dead Woman with Eyes Open month. Uh Mission Impossible is not even that high up on here. I'm I'm gonna stop scrolling. There's a lot of these here. Uh Skyfall and Casino Royale. Uh Batman, Carrie, Event Horizon, Get Carter, Zero Batman. Dark Thirty, Sin City, Kill Bill Volume One, Psycho, Les Miserables, Inglorious Bastards, Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows Part Two. Watchmen and Annihilation with Natalie Portman. She dies in the movie with her eyes open. We got to see that oh, one. Okay. Uh, colon in title. <laughs> <laughs> Coming soon to colon in title month. <laughs> Micro dots. <laughs> so it is number one. Uh, there are a lot of episodes. Oh, oh, wow. Half of the ones on here. Okay, there, there are under Microdot 14 in total. Half of the ones on here are episodes of the Mission Impossible TV show, as well as the Alias episode, Welcome to Liberty Village. So Microdot's very popular among these. Uh, Jumping from a rooftop, bound and gagged, along with women with bra and kissing while having sex. Um, SUV, flare gun, fake death. Uh, we have any other good ones here? Frogman? What does that mean? <laughs> well, my favourite here, and I just, I, I can't wait to do this month, is Disposable Camera. <laughs> and, um, the top five disposable camera movies of all time, Mission Impossible 3, Sweet Home Alabama, I know you watched that one recently, you love that film, uh, The Bone Collector, Bandcamp, and Cold Shivers, which looks like some sort of threesome movie. Um, so... <laughs> And also Mailbox. <laughs> I am afraid to click on this last one here. Tied to a chair titles. <laughs> Jamie this... knows it off by heart. Yeah, there's some good ones in here, including Suicide Squad, The Kingsman, Pacific Rim Uprising, uh, Thor Ragnarok, Sicario, and Black Panther. Um, yeah, I'm going to uh, find out. We have to find out. This is the best one. Kissing While Having Sex titles. Number one is Deadpool, followed by The Departed, The Room, Notebook, Iron Man, Troy, Braveheart, Raiders of the Lost Ark, Caddyshack, and Blue is the Warmest Color for Ben. Yes! (laughs) Blue is a lesbian room. (laughs) Have you seen it yet? No. Right. (laughs) I'm not going to be clicking on female removes her clothes because we've gotten enough trouble on this episode. (laughs) Anyways, uh, quick uh, critic roundup here. Uh, so overall 70% on Rotten Tomatoes, uh, it's a 6.9 on IMDb, so it's pretty respectable, but I think a lot of this is still, uh, whenever you go through this, you do have to put in a perspective of, uh, a lot of these reviews are the ones that came out at the time of the movie, and this is one movie that I think that, uh, definitely has improved as far as, <sighs> it's a long episode, <laughs> uh, <laughs> it, people's reaction, on Ebert and Roper, uh, Roper gave the movie a thumbs up. Ebert gave it a marginal thumbs down. Uh, Ebert's review said that either you want to see mindless action and computer-generated sequences executed with breakneck speed and technical precision, or you do not. 
I'm getting the point where I don't much care. I think that's kind of unfair. I don't think this movie is at all mindless action, and it's definitely not... Yeah, there's computer-generated sequences, but like we said, we have real stunts in there. So, um, uh, Some fun ones here. <laughs> uh, where's the one? I've got to find one specific one here. Okay, so this one's interesting. Um, Mission Impossible 3 has inspired middle hour, pumped by some solid action. Uh, we now live in a post-born, recalibrated Bond universe where Ethan Hunt looks a bit lost. What I find funny about that is that by the time Mission Impossible 3 comes out, people are saying... There's Bond, there's Jason Bourne, Ethan Hunt is lost in the shuffle. We're now at the point where the Bourne series is tired and worn out. The James Bond series definitely isn't, but you more and more hear more and more Bond fans saying, I like what the Mission Impossible movies do a lot more because it feels more James Bond-like. So (laughs) I think we've come around in the last 12 movies here. And uh, here's the one I want to find. This perfectly sums up the problem with uh, people's opinion at the time. Claudia Pugue, great name, of USA Today, said Mission Impossible 3 delivers a despite a sense... Mission Impossible 3 delivers despite a sense that the franchise is played out and its star overexposed. So basically says, good movie, but Tom Cruise is too much. So... He's too famous. Yeah, he's too famous. He's too fit. He's too handsome. He's too gay. Just say it, Claudia. <laughs> From my often face in my life. Homophobic uh, Claudia Pugue. <laughs> Pugue? What's her name? Pugue. Sounds like a homophobe to me. It sounds like something you do when something smells bad. Ah, oh, Pugue. <laughs> Let's add like our reviews, Claudia. <laughs> Let's add our reviews to this one. Um... I'm no Claudia Pugue. I appreciate Tom Cruise, couch jumping and all. And I think action-wise, this is almost him at his best. We're going to top it uh, coming up in one of the future movies. But, I mean, on one hand, you do have to look at it and say that there there really isn't that much of a story here in this movie. But what they have, they execute it so well. And J.J. Like, Abrams, I'm not even going to say for a first-time director. I mean, if J.J. Abrams made this movie now, I think a lot of people would be saying – yeah, I think I think I like this better than The Force Awakens. I want him to do more Mission Impossible and less Star Wars. I think that he just he he gets what to do with this franchise. And as an Alias fan, I appreciate how much this felt like the Alias movie, and um, certain things that improve over time, like the love story is way better to watch now than it was in two thousand six. Uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman's way more appreciated now than he was in two thousand six. Uh, there's no way I'm not buying this movie, but I- I'm just going to go on the record here of saying that I always forget how good this movie is. I said at the beginning, and then when I watch it, I'm like, wow, like, how do you top this movie? And then I know we're going to top it, but uh, it- th- this movie just al- it always surprises me how much I get blown away by it and how good it is and how memorable so many of these sequences are. So basically your order right now is 312, is that correct? Oh... <sighs> It's that's where it gets really tough for me because my opinion on my favorite Mission Impossibles change all the time. Other than the fact that two's at the bottom, so I don't know if I would say this is above one. I think we'll have to kind of look at the whole series, but uh, I mean, at the time it came out, it was pretty close between these two, and I'd still say the same. It's pretty tight for them. Well, I'm gonna. This is my first one. I'm gonna buy. I haven't bought one yet, so uh, yeah, I yeah. enjoy this. Um, my order is three, one, two. Um, 
I mean, it's it's. I think the action alone is kind of it's it's not a boring movie at all. It does move by very quickly in terms of you know it's not one you're looking at the clock and wondering shit when's this going to be over with. So yeah, definitely it works well, and you know Philip Seymour Hoffman is great. Tom Cruise is great. Um, everyone's great in this film. So uh, yeah, I enjoy it. It's a buy. It's a first buy for me. All right, and I did tell you after the last one it would get better, and I'm not lying because. Boy, will it get better next week. Uh, this is where I think you were uh, completely floored when you started to look at the reviews for the past two Mission Impossible movies and just see, like, it's like 98% uh, for Ghost Protocol and Rogue Nation. And so those are the two we're going to get into now. So uh, it's going to be a new era for Mission Impossible. It's going to be more of the team effort movies. J.J. Uh, Abrams will officially come on as a producer after this. So we should mention Tom Cruise, who got into producing movies with the first Mission Impossible his producing partner, Paula Wagner, and him, they did these first three movies. Uh, they'd eventually you know, sp- split up their uh, company and do two separate things, and J.J. Abrams basically becomes the second guy producing. But They got divorced. They did, yes, <laughs> because she found out that he was in love with somebody else. Don't say it, Ben. J.J. Abrams. No. <laughs> yes, J.J. Abrams. I guess you can <laughs> this time. But, um, I mean, the J.J. Abrams influence is still all over Ghost Protocol, but what's most interesting is that the, the director choice that they had, which Tom Cruise, I think he took a big gamble with Mission Impossible 3 and it really paid off. So for 4, he took an even bigger gamble and he hired Brad Bird. So if you're not familiar with who Brad Bird is, uh, he, prior to Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol, was most well known for directing The Incredibles. So this is a guy who'd never done live action before and was a Pixar Disney animated director. And it was so weird, but people got so excited. Again, Tom Cruise finds this way to make these movies and do even little casting things like Simon Pegg and, uh, you know, Carrie Russell or Philip Seymour Hoffman in this case. And director's choices like J.J. Abrams and Brad Bird that it got so much attention. Uh, I remember the weirdest thing that Tom Cruise said going into Ghost Protocol was that the movie felt like a Mission Impossible movie, but it would feel like a Brad Bird movie. And when you watch the movie, you're kind of getting to get, especially with the action stage, you could almost imagine it almost like an animated movie. I think it's something completely different from the other Mission Impossibles, but uh, they they were very touchy with releasing this movie because people weren't 100% sold on Tom Cruise yet. And the most interesting thing to talk about was just the release of this movie because they picked a very risky release strategy in 2011, which really paid off when you see the box office, despite the fact that this does not have the same opening weekend that other movies had. Um, this is the movie that made Mission Impossible like my third favorite franchise. I guess Rogue Nation eventually is what got me there, but it was Ghost Protocol that convinced me. It's like like they can really do incredible things here. Like because I'm, I'm going to spoil it right now. I said at the beginning that you know I I wouldn't reveal what my favorite movies. Ghost Protocol is by far my favorite Mission Impossible movie. And it's also similar to three. It's one of the simpler ones as far as the story goes, but it's just, it's just everything in it's absolutely incredible. And I can't even count how many times I've seen this movie. Uh, I don't even know. We should already say we may not get this episode up exactly a week from today because we do have some scheduling conflicts coming up. But I'm basically going to start watching this thing tomorrow and then just wait on you for whenever we can record. Like I'm that excited to watch it again. We have uh, some court cases to go through in the next couple yeah. of weeks. So basically, <laughs> we may not be um, back. <laughs> yeah. And I can count uh, how many times I've seen this movie. It's zero. So um, 
I'm just looking at the cast for this movie. Leia Seydoux's in this movie, so that's yep. exciting. Uh, Josh Holloway's in it too. Yeah. Uh, good to see some Sawyer in this movie. So, um, yeah, that's about all I can say about this one. But is this the one with the, the Burge Darfy, the tallest building in the world? Yeah. Is it this one or the next one after this? It's, yeah, Ghost Protocol next. Burj Khalifa. I always call it the Burj Darfi. It's Burj Khalifa. <laughs> Everyone knows what I'm talking about. Um, oh, is this so, like, yeah. Lasagna Parmesan? <laughs> just coming up with words. Yeah, just just making things up essentially along the way. But uh, I might also watch Blue is the Warmest Colour in between hand just to uh, make sure that I'm all up to date with Leia Do as well. Yeah, I mean, oh, I, I can't wait to talk about this next movie. Um, there's so much good stuff in this, especially the stunt, which I, I'm going to consider it the greatest stunt in modern movies. I, I don't know if you could ever say anything can top the uh, ski jump in The Spy Who Loved Me, but for an entire sequence i think it is maybe the most spectacular looking stunt ever and this was sort of the movie that revived imax movies as well which uh we'll also talk a lot about but ghost protocol will be at some point within the next uh two to yeah. 14 days maybe <laughs> a year might be a good estimation uh we will be back to talk about ghost protocol uh mission impossible for tom cruise not jumping off couches uh, Brad Bird making Incredibles live action movies and everything else. Uh, it's gonna be fun, but yeah, as we mentioned, scheduling reasons probably not gonna be exactly on this day next week, but we will get it as soon as we can, and then eventually on to Rogue Nation, and then eventually on to Follow because that's coming soon as well. Yes, and that is exciting. Uh, I'm gonna go see Ant Man and the Wasp in the middle of all this, so. Um, just thought I'd let everyone know in case they wanted to know about my life and I'll probably, don't know if you're going to see it or not, but if you don't, I'll do a review on it. But anyway. Is Mallory going with you? Yes, she is. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Then you have somebody to review with if I don't get a chance Well, that's, that's, I think, why we can't generally record this on the day we do, because that's the day I'm going to see Ant-Man yeah. and Watts, because basically <laughs> the only time her and I can go and see it. So, uh, I was going to ask you off air if you're going to be joining us for that, but clearly you're not, so... Mallory and I will do it. I then. might. We'll see. I, I have uh, other questions. We don't want you. <laughs> <laughs> um, but anyways, so Ant-Man review coming soon. <laughs> uh, we'll be back at some point in the next little while with other episodes in the next week also. Uh, and the start of Amazing Race Canada coming soon as well. We always say we hate to date Yay. these episodes, but then we'll plug which things were coming up in the next week. <laughs> yeah. Anyways. Oh, I can't wait for Jurassic Park 1 to come out. Yeah. <laughs> oh, date uh, subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Podcasts, uh, anything else you can find us on. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter. Please Sue us on the court. Yeah. <laughs> Subpoena us at the following address. <laughs> uh, my name is Pavel Sabotka. Okay. Okay. <laughs> and my name is Ben. And please don't interrupt me while I'm using rhetorical questions. Hashtag Tom Cruise is gay. Thank you for listening to the Oz Network. Don't forget to subscribe to get new episodes delivered to your speakers every week. For more information, hit us up at theoznetwork.net.